0: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.
1: Hey, everybody. This is Gus, uh, Redress for Dummies. We are at uh, redressfordummies.org. And with us tonight is, uh, is a friend who's done a, a tremendous amount of uh, research on Redress, the remonstrance process in New Hampshire. Uh, Daniel, I'm going to let you introduce yourself uh, because you have a lot of background with the dogs and and other things, and uh, I'm not sure what you want to get into, but uh, for those of you just tuning in, um, Daniel knows way more about redress and remonstrance than I do, 10 times, 20 times. He's done a ton of research really knows his shit. And, uh, and, and Daniel, I've invited uh, some, pre- some former state reps and some current state reps from New Hampshire, but it was all in the last half hour, so I'm not sure how many people will be able to tune in. And, okay. Uh, I, I was planning on having this be a private call with three or four of us, but I've already invited probably 50.
2: <laughs> uh, that's, all, that's, all so, good. that's all good.
1: Yeah, go ahead and uh, introduce yourself and then just start rolling about what you've learned, how you discovered it, and so on.
2: Sure. Uh, My name is Daniel Richard. I live in New Hampshire. Uh, I immigrated here in the 60s. My parents immigrated here from Canada. I was born in Sherbrooke, and I grew up in uh, Manchester, the biggest city in the state. And I was naturalized in 1981, I became a citizen of the United States of America, so my certificate says, and uh, uh, the rest, they say, is history. Uh, I came to uh, my awareness of Gus a few years ago uh, upon doing some research, um, and uh, he really opened my eyes over Article 38 in our state constitution. And before we go down that road, I want to give everyone an introduction Um, as it reads in our state constitution uh, because it's very profound uh, and let me quote from it in convention held at Concord the 31st day of October 1783 the returns from the several towns being examined and appearing that the foregoing bill of rights and a form of government were approved by the people and the same are hereby agreed on and established by the delegates of the people and declared to be the civil constitution for the state of New Hampshire to take place on the first Wednesday of June 1784, and that in the meantime, the present government make all necessary arrangements for the introduction or introducing this constitution at that time and in the manner therein described. Now, I started there because of the importance of consent and throughout. Uh, my conversation this evening, I want to cover that as an important uh, uh, absolute requirement of any contract, but more importantly, the founding principles of our state constitution, it appears in our first article. And, uh, And so that's how the whole process begins here in New Hampshire, most importantly, because the states come before the federal constitution. As I just indicated, the year is 1783. It's a full five years before they go to Philadelphia and meet for the famous Constitutional Convention, and uh, uh, I feel that the importance of understanding this state constitution has been paramount to me unlocking a great many issues that many on the call are already aware of, and uh, and I found that uh, getting into the meat of this state has really unlocked things that were otherwise not obvious to people studying these old texts. Thus brought it to my attention years ago, Article 38 in our State Constitution. Pardon me while I scroll to it, because I'm using the original text. By the way, anybody who wants to see this, it's a large file. It's at the UNH Law Library in our state law school, state-run law school and uh, it has the first four years of the state legislature in it. But this is going directly to the redress of grievance and the, uh, the means to remonstrate and understanding its, its origins.
1: Hey, Daniel, uh,
2: just, yeah.
1: just to clarify, when, you, when you're talking about the first four years, you're talking about the minutes
2: of the sessions for the first four years, correct? Exactly, of the House and the Senate.
1: Yes, okay. Thank you
2: and um, a lot of the other early state papers that were relevant they were archived together. Article 38, as most of the state constitutional articles are, there's two important things you've got to understand when you read this document. One is that one often and almost always references another article in the Constitution. And many of these articles have multiple parts to them, just like the Federal First Amendment, has five tenets in it and of course the last one being the fundamental right to redress of grievance of your government but there are five others and most people refer to the First Amendment as the freedom of speech or the freedom of religion but the same in New Hampshire and so let me repeat it uh, or quote it and then go over what I feel are the important uh, components of that article to this conversation a frequent recurrence to the fundamental principles of the Constitution and a constant adherence to justice, moderation, temperance, industry, frugality, and all social virtues are indispensably necessary to preserve the blessings of liberty and good government. People ought, therefore, have a particular regard to all those principles in the choice of their officers and representatives and they have a right to require of their lawgivers and magistrates an exact and constant observance of them in the formation and execution of the laws necessary for a good administration of government. Pretty lengthy, but I want to focus on the second half, and that is the part where they identify they have a right to require of their lawgivers and magistrates, so that, that means that the citizens of the state, the qualified inhabitants, have a right to have oversight of their legislative body because if you read the full context of this sentence, require of their lawgivers and the magistrates, the judges, an exact and constant observance of what? Of the fundamental principles of the Constitution as well as in the formation. In other words, when the legislative body is making public policy, and the execution, the executive, in other words, when this governor or any actor in state government is trying to exercise colorable law, you have the right to intervene at any stage, and I'll I'll make this uh, obvious in some of the historical context, but anyway, uh, that's why I felt that it was so important. This is what Gus brought to my attention many years ago and really opened up my eyes to start paying attention to the importance of the fact that New Hampshire's Constitution has 38 rights in the original. It has 39 today and that's so profoundly important because the average person is taught that the Federal Bill of Rights is the origin of enumerated rights when in fact they completely devoid of the fact that that document doesn't apply to us here in the states. The state Constitution is the contract between the people and the type of government they choose to live under. And this led to those enumerated rights. And the federal constitution was written as a prohibition five years later when it was drafted. All the states, when they went to ratify the new constitution, they all protested and said, we'll agree to this federal compact on one condition. That these things be entered in to secure the blessings of liberty and the rights that the state constitution. Remember, every one of the eight rights that you know in the federal were all codified and incorporated into the state constitution already. In every one of the thirteen colonies, that it all become sovereign states. So that's why it's so profound to understand this concept because it's not taught in school. And so let's move from there to what I feel is a very important point, and I'm going to pull up a Word document that I have here. A lot of this conversation tonight is going to focus on redress and specifically how public officials avoid being held accountable, what they call public official immunity. A qualified hey Daniel, immunity. But is, yeah, go ahead.
1: Before before you continue, um, there's a lot of people uh, that are going to be listening to this that, Uh, They don't know what redress is. They don't know what remonstrance is, what the difference is between the two. There's a a lot of really basic stuff. I mean, you and I can go back and forth on this stuff all day, but there's a lot of people tuning in that have no idea what we're talking about. Uh, Article 31 of the New Hampshire Constitution is, is in regards to redress. Article 32 of the New Hampshire Constitution is in regards to remonstrance. And what's the difference between those two? And I'll just let you go from there.
2: Absolutely. I'll jump right there since uh, uh, that's a great tip. Uh, I'm going to quote 31 because it is the primary objective of our state general court. And it was called the general court because under English common law, the, the the redress of grievance for the concerns of the people were always brought to the general court so that they could find a remedy for anything that was either a a problem or the other delegated powers that were available to the legislature to convey, for example, corporate charters. So Article 31, quote, the legislature ought frequently to assemble for redress of grievance, for correcting, strengthening, and confirming the laws, and for making new ones, as the common good may require. Now, I just quoted you the original 1784. In 1792, when New Hampshire, as part of the 13 original colonies, adopted and ratified the new federal constitution, they amended the state constitution and they removed some of this language specifically for correcting and strengthening. Uh, that's why I love to go to the original source because it gives you the original intent. But I would say that, again, they're telling you right there. The legislature ought frequently to assemble for what? And they did. Aggressive grievances, and they did. Twenty five hundred. Yeah, in those, when you
1: in those first four yes. years, the, the 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 paperwork you've got uh, that that exactly. particular document, that file uh, in the first four years, there was twenty five hundred petitioners, and it didn't stop there. It, it wasn't just those four years. I when I was at the uh, archives in in New Hampshire. I found petitions as late as the 1940s. You know, there was a regular part of, of the legislature's daily activity.
2: Would you count almost 200,000 by that time?
1: Well, the index that's on my old website, which might be on my new website, I'm not sure, but the index from uh, Fred Meavers, I think, is the guy that uh, was the previous archivist before Brian. And he okay. compiled uh, all the petitions from... I think from from 1708, you know, 60 years, 65 years before the the, the New Hampshire Constitution, and then I mean the, the the first New Hampshire Constitution reads like the like the Declaration of Independence, and it was in January of 1776. A lot of that in Declaration of Independence language comes from New Hampshire's original Constitution, and long before that.
2: that. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. No, I was going to say. Not only that, New Hampshire actually wrote its own Declaration of Independence on June fifteenth, a full, a full two weeks before uh, its delegates sign on to the famous federal one we often refer to. Yep, yep. But so, so uh, that, that, that profound.
1: That that yeah. index that uh, fr- I think his name is Fred did, and it's all. Yeah, I've, I've got it on my old website, which is uh, New dot but uh, right. that has about 200,000 petitioners uh, listed in the index from roughly 1708 to the 1820s. And that's as far as he got in the index. That's not when the petition stopped. That's just when this guy, you know, 10 years ago, uh, got right. done. When he retired, he was up to the 1820s. And uh, you know petitions kept on going. There, there was petitions every day all day long. You know, I, I can give you Google links to the Senate journals, the House journals, where they met in convention, had you know one petition after another, and petitions were very, very simple. I, you know, I read one petition where uh, this lady sent, you know, her husband went to war, and I think it was seven, you know, in the 1770s. <clears throat> he went to war with two trousers, a belt, a horse, a, you know, a rifle, and all this stuff. Right. He came home, and he was he was short a pair of trousers. He he didn't have his belt. And she, you know, and I think that was it. I'm pretty sure he came back with everything else. And she put in a bill to the to the New Hampshire right. legislature in the form of a redress for compensation. It was a claim. That's right. And right. it was read right. before the house before the joint session of the legislature, and uh, they voted. And on the back, the, the speaker of the house signed off, giving her leave to bring her bill to the treasury. And that was it. You know, just one, just one simple thing. You know, there, there's a claim. Look, you know, the man's looking for compensation, and she got it.
2: Yep. Nothing yep. And complicated. That's, and that's the beauty, Gus. That's the beauty when you read the first four years, when you see the simplicity of how how this wonderful form of government they had created for themselves. And while I'm on that subject, uh, for those of you who haven't studied, there's a great resource out there. Uh, a former prosecutor in Florida, a lady named Chris Ann Hall, who teaches the genealogy of the Constitution, and understanding that New Hampshire was created in 1622. By the time the Declaration of Independence comes into existence, people had been living here for 100. The the English colonists had been here for 150 years. So with their own uh, government, yeah exactly with the with a colonial english form of government practicing english common law so in order to read the federal and state constitutions properly one ought to study her teaching because it covers the 1100 charter of liberties the 1215 magna carta the 1628 petition of right the grand remonstrance i think 1648 and then the english bill of rights those five key documents are the fundamental are the, all the English struggle of common law to find a way to live with the king. And then ultimately, we invert the paradigm by no longer ha- being subject to the sovereign, but the people themselves becoming the sovereign. And, and this, uh, understanding this is what's been taken from us. People don't understand. We, we have New Hampshire originally was five counties. It was a constitutional republic when it was created. And so uh, understanding these fundamental principles are, are critical. I want to move right to Article 32 now. Uh, this is the right. So Article 31 says the legislature ought to assemble frequently. For what purpose? The P, Article 32. The people have a right in an orderly and peaceful manner to assemble and consult upon the common good give instructions to their representatives and a request of the legislative body by way of petition or remonstrance, redress of wrongs done them and the grievances they suffer. Now, the two key words in all of that, three, one, the right, but two, what? Petition or remonstrance. Let me explain to everyone listening the difference between the two. A petition is what one files when one request of the legislative body to ask of them to perform a task, they are constitutionally permitted to act upon. In other words, they have the delegated power to do something you want them to do for you, whether it's the issuance of a corporate charter, which used to be a, an important function of our state legislature to make good corporate neighbors because corporate charters had legislative oversight. How, what a novel idea that would be today. I digress. The remonstrance, on the other hand, is the exact opposite. A remonstrance is the act of protesting something the government has either already done, something they propose to do, or something they propose to do in the future. And I'm going to start with one of the most famous examples. Patrick Henry and George Mason had a conflict in 1785, again, right after the Revolutionary War. Virginia is now a sovereign country. Patrick Henry proposes a petition with the Virginia legislature to enact a tax to promote the teaching of Christian principles, to promote a moral culture in their new country. And James Madison objected for two reasons. And rightfully so. And he did so by remonstrance, by remonstrating. It's the act of protesting. And he uh, it's a stern, a strong protest over proposing this. Now, what he did was he argued that a uh, which version of Christianity shall we teach? That's a great question. And then the second one was do we really want to allow the state to finance anything, because what the state finances it now controls. Many constitutional scholars view, and this is available for anyone listening to go online, and I challenge you to go and look up Memorial and Remonstrance, James Madison. And uh, it's a brilliant dissertation. Many scholars view Madison's work in that document on par with the Declaration of Independence as a critical, critical document in our history because he does a brilliant dissertation at breaking down the, the explaining what government is and why and how it ought to function and then exercising that, that right to protest the, the proposed act of a government. And this is what's been taken from us. We've lost what I mentioned earlier in Article 38 We've lost through simply the deprivation of information and knowledge because we no longer teach civics in school, which used to be mandated. Here in New Hampshire, it was required as part of the curriculum that kids in high school, part of their four-year teaching, that they had to learn and the state constitution had to be read aloud for what purpose? Because when those children become adult leaders that sit in our legislature, They ought to be aware of the law of the land, the state constitution, so that they can, what, be wise with its governance. Because if they don't learn it there, and that's what we have today, my state legislature is full of probably almost all of them are good-intentioned, well-intentioned people. Even the crazy liberals. Sorry about that. I just couldn't help myself. Anyway, Uh. uh, (laughs) they are well-intended. But here's what they're devoid of. 99.9% of them don't even know what the state constitution says. And therefore, how can they be held to account if they violate their oath of office? And the means by which this can be exercised is the remonstrance process. It's a three-step process. First, you identify your standing. Your standing is that you're a citizen of the state. Second. You identify the constitutional articles by which you are standing on that, you, that, that this is an encroachment on your rights and this is a usurpation of power is, is the last part. Because now you're going to argue this is what the Constitution says and this is why this doesn't jive. Because my state constitution in New Hampshire has an important caveat in the delegated power that the people gave The form of government, and that was that part one, the 38 enumerated rights, were the whole purpose of the state government. Part two, form of government, was created specifically to protect part one. So when the people granted the legislature any power, they had a stern caveat, and that was, shall not enact anything that is repugnant or contrary to said Constitution. It went further and repeated that again and said shall not create any agencies or enact any buildings or make any buildings to, in, to house unconstitutional agencies shall not be repugnant or contrary to the Constitution. Well how's that work when you have an entire state government that's completely devoid of the state Constitution? Our bar exam here in New Hampshire for the lawyers practicing law don't even have a single question about our state constitution. I call UNH Law School. They don't teach it anymore other than minor procedural effects. Why? Because the state constitution no longer applies. My state's been corporatized. It's a federal instrument, and that's we'll get into that later, but that's why this is not relevant, and so they have a major problem. I've re- it's not by which so I to, can hold to, them accountable,
1: yeah, to clarify that um it's not relevant to them, however, you are in the process of bringing that back and making it relevant, and you've corrected your status, you are standing in the general court as as a man, a citizen of the state of new hampshire uh and not only that, you're doing it uh having been. You're, you know, given birth in Canada. So you're a naturalized citizen, as I am, and uh, I was naturalized in the, in the 90s, and you're, you're bringing this process forward. So as much as they would like to see it go away and they've not paid attention to it, you've been able to bring it back, and you're actually in court. You're, 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 you're holding people accountable right now to that, uh,
2: that constitution. On that point, let me tell the audience what I've done up to date. Uh, Several years ago, in uh, September of 2017, uh, my journey began looking for what happened to the common law court of record. A friend of mine, he's now a friend at the time I didn't know it, was involved with an organization promoting a common law grand jury. And so I had come to the knowledge of Antonin Scalia's brilliant breakdown of of that tool that instrument so I started studying the state constitution to find out what happened to it and it was that journey that that prompted me to do a forensic examination of the state constitution and find out what exactly is in this document and then I cross-referenced it to the to the current and then I set about figuring out how did all the changes happen and secondarily Were they lawful? Were they ethical? And I argue today that no, the majority and the changes of our form of government have all been achieved by violating the procedural due process required to amend the state and federal constitution. And all of this encroachment on our rights and the function of our government has only been possible by an anesthetized society, a society so wealthy and so comfortable that it no longer takes uh, the same concerns that it ought to about the importance, and now with everyone being so upset about this this uh, this current virus, it, listen. The fact that the matter is, folks, we get the government that we deserve if we don't participate. And listen, I'm the first one to confess. I became naturalized when I was 17. I joined the military a month, the U.S. military a month later. I raised my hand and swore an oath to a document I didn't read, I didn't understand, and I did the same thing everyone else did, does. Excuse me. And so uh, I was no different and no better. What happened to me was I started this awakening process, and now... I I always say to people, I'm not the smartest guy in the group. I just happen to be the person who took the time to self-educate myself on a state constitution that's no longer taught. And this put in motion all unraveling all of the other things. So as the Internet has been an extraordinary tool for research and growth, uh, the, the amount of data that Google has copied and stored online is tremendous. Uh, And and so a great, uh, besides going to the state archives and the state library, um, the, the cumulative effect of all of these things, I've been able to uncover how all these changes have come into effect, and I believe that these changes have been duplicated in all 50 states in some variation or other, and I'll name exactly those three instruments. They are a statutory person, a statutory state, and a statutory federal citizen. We'll get into those later. But those are the three instruments that they get every one of us before the awakening, every one of us consented to the jurisdiction that we are subject to. I argue that we are under the same tyranny identified in great detail that the Declaration of Independence. But if you don't know the complaints of the Declaration of Independence, how can you know how your rights today are being taken and trampled on today? Go yeah,
1: you can't. you can't. You can't. For, for instance,
2: um, you said there was a pandemic
1: years and years ago, a long time ago. And, yeah, uh, in the, the governor Constitution, i read it to you. Go ahead.
2: Yeah, hang on a second. Let me scroll to it. Okay. Whoops. Wrong way. Here it is, governor, president. The president of the state in New Hampshire, one of the reasons the the inhabitants of the state rejected the second attempt to ratify a state constitution, they wanted a president. They had a colonial governor, but they were becoming a sovereign country. So they created for themselves a president, and it isn't until uh, we adopt the federal constitution that New Hampshire has to amend its constitution and replace the word president in twenty six places and, and reinsert the word governor that we have today, so this at this period of time the governor is the commander in chief and I found this hang on right here ba, 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 ba. at
1: that time the the president was the was the
2: exactly was the he commander in chief yes. exactly the president of New Hampshire. And so, hang on, I'm on the right page. So Here that's, uh,
1: for, for those of you not familiar, that's, that's between 1776 or uh, you know, roughly when New Hampshire became independent and when the federal constitution was adopted, which is a period of about 11
2: years. So this text that I'm going to quote from uh, is the 1783 constitution, and it quote. And in case of infectious distemper prevailing in the place where the said court at, at any time is to convene or any other cause whereby dangers may arise to the health or lives of the members for the attendance, the president may direct the session to be holden at some other the most convenient place within the state and to continue into his delegated powers. The president of this state for the time being shall be commander-in-chief of the army and the navy and all military forces of the state or by sea and land and shall have full power by himself or by any chief commander or any other officer or officers from time to time to train, instruct, and exercise and govern the militia and navy and for special defense and safety of this state and to assemble in martial array to put in a warlike posture the inhabitants thereof to lead and conduct them with them to encounter expulse repel resist and pursue by force of arms as well as by sea as by land within the and without the limits of the state and also to kill slay destroy if necessary and conquer by all fitting ways enterprise excuse me enterprise and means all and every such person and persons as shall at any time hereafter in hostile manner attempt or enterprise the destruction, invasion, determinate, excuse me, determinate, or excuse me, detriment or annoyance of the state. I mean, this is in powerful stuff that they don't teach anymore. And, and to understand right. the full context of his of his delegated power, and it goes on to say that he may have the right to. Speak to move the legislative body and temporarily suspend it for 90 days because let me back up the part that I read about the virus. president with the advice of counsel, the executive council shall have the power and authority to redress the general court. But in order to declare war, he had to have the permission of the legislative body. Where do you think that comes from at the federal level? Why do you think the federal president has to seek consent of the Congress, the consent of the people to go to war. These are not well, principles. The, I'm sorry. These are not principles, Gus. That are new when we write the federal Constitution. These things no. were in well in effect because the so, the 13 sovereign countries, as identified in the Articles of Confederation, which is mandatory reading as well, the loose knit compact that they had agreed to. I argue the difference between the Articles of Confederation and the Federal Constitution are fundamentally this. The states themselves, the citizens of the states, the inhabitants, the qualified electors, had actually not ratified their constitutions. They didn't in New Hampshire. In other words, New Hampshire doesn't ratify its constitution until two years later, even though its delegates that went to the Continental Congress did agree to the Articles of Confederation, and it's a participant in the the Compact. The problem was, of course, was that there were as many rules governing commerce as there were state legislatures. That was the whole purpose of James Madison luring everyone to Philadelphia for the convention, was under the pretense to amend the Articles of Confederation, but unfortunately he had a plan. His plan was to completely abolish that and create a, what, a national central democracy something that most people don't understand. They've not studied the fact, the the convention itself, and most importantly, the the conventions of the states and what was said in the state conventions when they debated, the debate in the legislatures are profound historical study. Um, That's been a a great blessing to me in, in, in my understanding of trying to understand all of this old language and old history because obviously it's several hundred years old. Gus? Yes. Yeah? just did see it if you had anything to add to that. No. no the,
1: the, you know, I, I look at something as simple as the titles of nobility. It was mentioned in the Articles of Confederation, and That's then it was great. mentioned, you know, in order to form a more perfect union, they, cr- they did the Constitution, it didn't, that, didn't go, that didn't get rid of the Articles of Confederation, but they brought forward a lot of that stuff. And so you have the titles of nobility again in the Constitution. And then you know, 20 years later, uh, you know, April uh, not April, December 9, 1812, New Hampshire was the last state to ratify and put into effect the original 13th Amendment, which finally gave it some teeth. And if you right. breached that amendment, you lost your citizenship and you know exactly so so you know you, you have these these uh and i'm sure before the articles of confederation you know they had the same problem with titles of nobility you know you, you know well, you, you couldn't accept the title of nobility from spain because they were english you know so they you know the, these are principles that have come along over you know centuries they, they, there's nothing new about those
2: things no absolutely gus and you bring up a great point that i'd like to expound on uh, the titles of nobility. Uh, the major difference between the formation of the state and federal constitutions and what comes out of that is this point. All a great many of those men who gave their lives and fortunes and sacred honor to fight off a king. They many of them were very well educated, very wealthy, they were the landowners. You had, to, in order to be in public office in New Hampshire, you had to have skin in the game. You had to be a landowner. You, in order to be an inhabitant, you paid a poll tax. You consented to being taxed. You consented. But if you didn't contribute to the expense of said protection, you had, you couldn't, you were entitled to the protections, but you weren't entitled to determine how those protections were delivered to you. What a novel concept that is. But I digress back to the title of the nobility. The difference were that those men, even though many of them were lawyers, they were practicing English common law. The whole perversion that we ultimately become known today of today's bar association and the abuse, for example, as you alluded to, the 13th Amendment is what? is the evidence that even though there were many honorable men that were lawyers and esquires that created these constitutions, and they even cite their title in many places, those men were honorable. The perverts that follow them, and those who were traitors to their oath, changed many things that ultimately starts questioning their loyalty and allegiance, because the outside actors of the other countries that still want to prohibit this union or this expansion of the colonies, right? They figure they may be fighting with the king, but maybe we find our way in there, right? Because you still had all the other European monarchs and European powers. But ultimately, the effect of what lawyers can do when they abuse their power and trust of public office, it led to them banning it and now rightfully so, that that was exactly the right thing to do. And, Gus, again, what you alluded to is they had to make this go away. So. Oh, They had, they had to, about, yeah. And this isn't about bashing lawyers, because if you study law and you study the whole system, 99.9%, I know there are lots of stupid lawyers, I don't want to make lawyer jokes here, but fundamentally, most of them are pretty bright because they've had to survive a lot of schooling and then ultimately pass the bar exam. And Yeah, well, the, the, you
1: know, the big difference between now and then is
2: back then they actually learned
1: law by, by first learning the doctrines of law, the basics of law, and they That's derived exactly. a lot of that from the Bible. It, it wasn't, stu- it wasn't you know, procedural bullshit.
2: Right, right. Well, well, and, and that's and what's the, wrong with the bar today, Gus. That's what's wrong today is that what we have now is that, uh, well, let me go down that road. Gus, do you want me to touch on anything else about the remonstrance? Let me back up a second because I got sidetracked and I didn't go down what I'm doing at the state. So I go to go the ahead. governor.
1: Do wrap that up, I yeah.
2: Per- I prepare a 15-page report. I take six men and my state rep. We get an appointment. We go to Governor Sununu's office, and we meet with his legal counsel, John Fermella. And I basically expose to him how the New Hampshire common law courts and the common law grand jury were abolished, and we'd like to sit down and discuss my investigation and to either reassure us that what I've uncovered is not true or to explain to us why it's valid. And of course, crickets, chirps, right? They're not going to sit down. They ignore us. I get a Dear John" letter in February. So this is September 31st of 2017. By February, we finally get a response after my state rep, and he ignores us. That summer, on July 4th, and I picked July 4th on purpose, I sued a Republican governor, even though I hate democratic politics. Uh, I would rather have him in office than a Democrat. I sued him anyway because he's the commander-in-chief, right? He's the CEO of this corporate state. And so the outcome was the content of the case was I was exposing many of the changes to our Constitution, specifically our voting laws. And guess what he didn't do? He didn't do anything. He defaulted. He refused to answer the complaint. He had an obligation under the rules of procedure in our courts that he had to answer within 30 days. He refused to answer, and instead, after the 37th day of ignoring after-service, the AG summarily showed up and had the case dismissed over procedural grounds while avoiding answering any of the underlying arguments. Now, I took a chance... And I took a calculated risk because the problem when you play in their courts is they'll come after you for frivolous litigation. But guess what I, they didn't do? They don't want to answer. They don't want to answer any of the things I've brought to light, which is another day, another conversation to go down that road. But it, it alludes to the things I said earlier, by the way, about the statutory state and the, you know, the, the federal citizenship and the statutory person. I get into all that but they don't want to talk about it. I then proceed to file a brief in federal court because the ACLU sues the, uh, the Secretary of State over the voting laws. The court accepts my brief. Basically walked into the federal court. The judge recognized me and acknowledged my presence and I told the judge that look, the Attorney General and the ACLU are both lying to you. They're committing fraud in the court neither one of them represents, and I said it politely, of course, I said neither one of them represent the interest of the people as articulated in the state and the federal constitution. They're both here to argue colorable law. And I articulated in my brief why that was the case, how they had amended our state constitution, amended our our voting laws by violating the procedural due process required to achieve those changes. And then the ACLU had no standing and they should know better because they in fact were bringing this frivolous litigation because they're arguing that a, a, a girl going to Dartmouth who is a citizen of California by her birth or, or naturalization and one coming from Louisiana, same thing, who is a citizen of that state by her birth or naturalization, is being charged the poll tax by being required to purchase or change their driver's license, and register their automobile as a resident, as a new resident of the state, and that that caveat was a poll tax in order to exercise quote their right to vote. All of it was BS. It's all bullshit. And so well, I'm, I'm hoping uh, before this,
1: I'm hoping before this calls over, we, we've still got an hour and a half if, uh, if you want to go the whole distance, uh, that we can cover the status correction and all that
2: stuff. Absolutely. So I went from from that whole process. And so that's still in state court as of last week. What happened was the federal court kicked it back to the New Hampshire Supreme Court to get an explanation. An explanation as to the definition of domicile resident and so on and so forth. And on that note, I'll go ahead and cover that real quick if you like, Gus.
1: I'd really like you to cover the difference between domicile, resident, inhabitant, all all that, how it came into being, how they changed the Constitution, the, the voter fraud that took place,
2: all that stuff. Okay. All right. Let me back up to the very first. I've studied and read every voting law ever written in the state of New Hampshire, going back to the first, which was created in 1808. And if you bear with me a second, I have it up. I'm going to pull it up here really appreciate
1: you doing this Dan
2: no problem here it is give me a second okay here is the very first voting law which addresses naturalization and before I go and read it I want to explain article 4 section 2 of the federal constitution is been interpreted by the federal supreme court that the way it's articulated in the article in the same article four in the Articles of Confederation means quote, and I'll quote the article every person excuse me, every person uh, I'm drawing a blank, give me a second I'm trying to do this verbatim uh, uh, every citizen uh, oh, i'm sorry, citizens of each state are entitled to the same privileges and immunities of citizens of the several states which means that you have the right to, as a citizen of Nebraska, to move to Kansas or to New Hampshire. And by doing so, you can cross state lines without border checkpoints, you can move your property without being taxed, and you have the right to go to another state to do trade and to do commerce. That's what that clause has been interpreted to mean, and that's what it meant in this voting law so let me quote the voting law chapter 49 of 1808 an act to determine who shall be voters in town meetings and to secure to the inhabitants of the state their rights of suffrage it's approved December 21st 1808 I'll skip all the others one section one be it enacted by the Senate and the House of Representatives and the general court convened that every male inhabitant of each town and parish with town privileges and places unincorporated in this state spelled with a capital S I might add since I'm reading and I'm talking and you guys can't see what I'm reading. And here's the, here's the important part, being a natural born or naturalized citizen of the United States, close quote. Now I'm going to go on to explain that in section two. But this language, being natural born or naturalized, gets removed in 1973 that causes all types of chaos. I'm going to start over with, excuse me, being a natural born or naturalized citizen of the United States of 21 years of age and upwards, accepting paupers and persons excused from paying taxes at their own request. Stop. Isn't that a wonderful idea? That you can request to be excused to pay taxes shall have a right at the annual and other meetings of the inhabitants in said towns and parishes to vote in town parishes wherein he dwells and hath his home. Stop. Dwells is, dwell means uh, reside, and hath his home has been interpreted in 1972 by the federal court as the common law definition of domicile, hath his home. Provided, however, that no person shall be considered an inhabitant in any town or parish in the state for the purposes of voting unless he has resided in such place six months or has become a freeholder. In other words, a property holder. So if you move from one town to the next, they protected their local elections so much that they didn't want you coming from out of town and affecting local elections unless you owned land. Let me go to the second part, which explains everything, section two, and be it further enacted, that no person, not being a citizen of this state or of the United States, shall be entitled to vote in any town meetings or choice of state, county, or town officers unless he shall have resided within this state two years and shall have made an oath before some justice of the peace. Or other person authorized to administer oaths that he will bear faith and true allegiance to the state of New Hampshire and to the United States and will support the Constitution's plural thereof provided however that no person not a citizen of this state or a citizen of the United States shall not be considered qualified to fill any county or state office As you can tell from that language, what it's basically articulating is that citizen of the United States as defined by the federal constitution is a citizen of a state. When you move from one state to the other, the privileges and immunities clause does not confer automatic citizenship from Kansas to New Hampshire. You have to reside no different than Gus and I coming from Canada, right? We were considered when we got green cards, we were considered permanent lawful resident aliens. <clears throat> it's important to understand that because in my state constitution, I'm going to go to it real quick, the language the word resident does not appear in the bill of rights. The words used in the 38 enumerated unalienable rights. Remember just because there are 38 that are numbered doesn't mean that the list is empty, the Ninth Amendment and the Federal Constitution, right? Just because this list, it's not the list in total. It just happens to be the ones we wrote down today. Well, yeah, but you, know, you look at
1: Article 4 of the New Hampshire Constitution, the rights of conscience, okay, which is very, very much agreeable with, uh, with the decision from uh, the Board of Education of West Virginia versus Barnett. All right, and uh, as well as uh, as Jeremiah 31 to 34, okay? Y- your conscience is number one. Supreme Court says you cannot force somebody to, to act or have faith in anything that goes against their conscience, okay, right. period. So they, they cannot right. make a law and force you to act according to that law because you have a right to your conscience, which which involves you know, hundreds and hundreds of decisions every day that you could be making. Right. And they cannot interfere with any of
2: that stuff. Right, exactly, exactly. And what are the first two articles in the state constitution? The very first one, and I'm going to go there now. Hang on. Whoops, I'm on the wrong slide. Give me a second here. (coughs) Okay, the very first, it's easier for me to scroll this way on this PDF. Okay, article one. All men are born equally free and independent. Therefore, all government of right originates from the people, is founded in what? Consent, is instituted for the general good. Article 2, all men have certain natural, essential, and inherent rights, among which are the enjoying and defending life and liberty. Acquiring, check, check out the detail about property here. Acquiring possessing and protecting property in a word seeking and obtaining happiness if you if everyone listening tonight takes one thing from this meeting i want you to understand this every state constitution i'll guarantee you is the is a protection contract let me prove it to you article 12 in our state constitution says quote Every member of the community has a right to be protected by it in the enjoyment of his life, liberty, and property, semicolon, stop. I want to go backwards. Every member means every member, because remember, New Hampshire's Constitution was written by and for white Christian men. It didn't mean that you everyone else didn't have rights, because the women and anyone else who wasn't a Protestant, was still a member of the community. So they were still entitled to the protection of life, liberty, and property. They just weren't qualified voters. I know it's racist, but that's what it was at the time. And so, but let me go back. I also point out the word protected. Because this is a protection contract, I continue. I'll start over. Every member of the community has a right to be protected by it in the enjoyment of his life, liberty, and property. And here's the, here's the second part of the contract. He's therefore bound to contribute his share in the expense of such protection. There's the quid, there's the pro, and here's the quo. And to yield his personal service when necessary or an equivalent. New Hampshire's first homeland security law was that every adult male over the age of 18 had to have a musket, a bowie knife, adequate loaded ammunition, and adequate quantities of gunpowder and lead. Continue. But no part of a man's property, and this is paramount, but no part of a man's property shall be taken from him or applied to public uses without his what? His own consent or that of the representative body of the people. Stop. The language said representative body of the people, not the representative body of the legislature. Because in Article 28, it goes on to expound upon your contribution to the share in the expense, and it uses the specific language that the representative body of the legislature. So what does this mean? It means that the representative body of the people are the voters because this is a common law compact, and therefore only the voters can what? Consent to the form of government. So under the ballot, measures that they provide to amend our state constitution, which has happened many times, is the means by which the people can do exactly that. And last, nor are the inhabitants of this state controllable by any other laws than those which they or their representative body have given their consent. There we go again. So that means that the redress of grievance process is directly tied to what I just outlined. When you find an infraction of encroachment on the federal const I mean of the state constitutional rights that you can exercise your right because they can't compel you under compel- colorable law, but if you don't know any of this stuff, guess what? You're a victim of the system. And as anyone who's fought in their courts, you're going to lose. You can't be in their court because it's corrupt. That's another conversation. So These these are the fundamental tenets that are so critical. Now, I wanted to go to Article 5, Part 2, Form of Government, to explain the word resident. I'm going to read to you the, the, the legislative power to make courts and the common law court of record. This is currently numbered number three in the original. There's no numbers in Form of Government. Quote, the general court shall forever have full power and authority to erect and constitute Judictaries, stop. Judicaries are courts, forms of justice. Judictaries in courts of record or other courts to be holden in the name of the state with a capital S for hearing, trying, and determining all manner of crimes, offenses, pleas, processes, plaints, actions, causes, matters, and things whatsoever arising or happening within this, quote, capital S state. Or between or per... Or concerning persons inhabiting or residing in other words if you live in New Hampshire you're either a citizen of the state and possibly a qualified voter or you're a resident residing here a college kid because I alluded to those voting laws it goes on to identify all the way in the very first voting laws that college kids because Dartmouth like Harvard predate our are, are, are so old That they're part of our foundation. But I digress. So back to subject to our courts. The next part is the most important part. And Gus really got on to this with Article 38. But this really makes an important point about this document was written to instruct public officials not to govern over you. It's to govern over them because it only addresses the people in a very limited context. And I'm going to explain it. Quote, this is Article 5, Form of Government, Part 2. And Father, full power and authority are hereby given and granted to the said general court from time to time to make, ordain, and establish all manner of wholesome and reasonable orders, laws, statutes, ordinances, directions, and instructions, either with penalties or without. So as the same be not repugnant or contrary to this Constitution. Remember I said that earlier, folks? It's so critical to understand this. As they may judge for the benefit and welfare of the state. Didn't say you, said the state. Because the state is what? The form of government. The introduction, the preamble has never been amended. This is important. We'll get into the statutory state, but I'm going to go back up for a second. Form a government, quote, the people inhabiting the territory formerly called the province of New Hampshire do here, hereby solemnly and mutually agree with each other to form themselves into a free, sovereign, and independent body politic or state by the name of the state of New Hampshire. Again, state is capitalized. I'm going to expose later on how we now have a federal state. My state has a statutory state that is spelled with a capital S that is defined no longer as a body politic that is the body politic of the people, but rather a federal instrument, the property and possession of the federal government itself. And it says so. And I'll guarantee you that the same has been done in every one of your states. My state of New Hampshire operates on 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 the primary principle that the governor and all elected officials swear an oath to this lowercase statutory federal state and all our policies and statutes are all written pursuant to the statutory state in direct violation of this Constitution. But back to the power, the delegated power to them. And remember I said that that this was the power for the the elected officials to control the state? I'll start over. As they may judge for the benefit and welfare of this state, and for governing and ordering thereof. Who? The state. It just said so. And of the subjects of the same. I just said it. right? It keeps referring back to its governance over the state officials. In other words, making rules and regulations to govern the state because only the people can amend the common law, the state constitution, the law of the land. They can't do it. They can only propose amendments that have to be submitted by a two-thirds majority in a ballot form in a biannual election. So back to governance for the necessary support and defense of the government thereof to name and it gets on to settling and so on and so forth of public officers and the construct of creating a government, and then it gets into talking about, and the forms of such ulcer affirmations as shall be respectively administered unto them for the execution of their several offices and places, here's that word again, or the quote, so as the same be not repugnant or contrary to this constitution. And here, finally, we get to, all after all that, do we finally get to the limited legislative control that the state government has over us here in New Hampshire, and also to impose fines, mallocs, imprisonments, and other punishments, and to impose and levy proportionable and reasonable assessments, rates, and taxes upon all the inhabitants of, comma, and residents within said state. And upon all the estates of the same. Now, the word resident doesn't appear, as I said earlier, it doesn't appear in the Bill of Rights. The language used to define those people who are entitled to protection of the state constitution are defined as who? The people, determined by the U.S. Supreme Court, is when you see the people in the state and federal constitutions in the early text, it means the citizens of the state, the inhabitants. The citizens, those are the three descriptive definitions used to the people who have state constitutional protections. Why would they use the word resident? Because remember, I went ahead earlier and I explained this document was written before the federal government. So when these powers are delegated to the federal government in the naturalization clause, Article one, section eight, clause four of the federal constitution says that the delegated power to make natu- a uniform rule of naturalization. It didn't say the federal government, a body corporate, can make citizens unto itself. The current <coughs> excuse me, the current federal law says that it can only make it can only make citizens of a state. It can only confer the nationality of a state when someone like Gus and I became citizens of what? New Hampshire. Because you have to go, the original naturalization law of 1790 indicated that you had to go to a common law court of record in the state wherein you reside. And after meeting the residency requirements, apply just like I read earlier with the same naturalization requirement. You live in a particular place and reside for the term defined by the state so that they can do what? Determine that you're not a bad actor, that you're not trash. You're not there to suck off the system and cause all of these other issues. So it's important to understand all of these concepts. And so uh, the word resident, as I said, it goes on to, by the way, the voting laws in New Hampshire, and, I, and I'll bring, come back full circle, 1973, Chapter 54 in New Hampshire used the word resident to call you an alien. You're an alien to the state. In other words, you're a citizen of the United States you are a citizen of another state residing here because you have yet to establish your state citizenship. So, again, this isn't my opinion. This is all the text. And so I try not to inject my own opinion. I try to stick to the historical provable documents. So in 1973, some state representative proposed, remember I said earlier, that being native-born or naturalized citizen of the United States, without the, with, he advocated that we remove the descriptive language that for 183 years defined a citizen of the United States as someone not entitled to vote in New Hampshire. And so if you remove the descriptive language and you only use the context of the word citizen of the United States, how is my state legislature going to define which American citizens can vote here? I.e., come the changes of the word domicile and the word resident and all the lawyer games that come into play. So what they end up doing is they end up approving this bill. Now, the problem is that there is the, the, the bill doesn't achieve its stated objective. It ends up causing a manufactured crisis. Like I said, now we're no longer talking about state citizenship because remember, any of you studying state or federal constitutions remember, or, re, or looking at any document, specifically your voter affidavit, your driver's license application, if you choose to get one, that's another conversation for another day. But if you do so, they get you to do what? consent to federal jurisdiction because they use the language citizen of the United States. Federal Constitution, whenever you see the language citizen of the United States or United States citizen, know that you're talking federal jurisdiction because the federal Constitution, when it was created, was created to represent the interest of the 13 original states. And to deal with their inner, as James Madison said, the powers of the federal government are few and defined, and they were created to address the corporate external affairs of the states, to wage war, to uh, negotiate treaties and peace, to uh, to international treaties and alliances regulate international commerce. Those are the four things. If you look at the enumerated powers of the federal government, that was, its, that was the, f- the full scope of its power. So how does it go beyond that? Well, it has to go beyond that by the means I'm going to explain. And like I said, the um, uh, I, I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought. Gus, help me out. Where was I? I'm sorry. I just...
1: Unmuted in the middle of a coughing set <coughs> No, no, it's okay. You're <clears throat> talking about domicile inhabitants.
2: Yes, yes. So we removed we remove the descriptive language, so we're no longer talking about state citizens. And by the way, each of you in your own state, when dealing I'm not an attorney and I'm glad I'm not, but remember, if you look it up you're gonna find that you're being processed in a statutory state, a federal instrument, not in your constitutional state. So how do they do that? First, they, here in New Hampshire what they did is they proposed that we remove the common law definition of domicile and replace it with the word domicile because here in New Hampshire the word inhabitant was used 22 times to define specifically those who are qualified to vote are called inhabitants and those qualified to run or hold office are called inhabitants and defined as such. I'll read it to you. And every person qualified as the Constitution provides, comma, shall be considered an inhabitant for the purposes of electing and being elected into any office or place within this state in that town, parish, and plantation where he dwelleth and hath his home. Now, the word domicile comes from the French in the 15th century. It existed when this document was written. Why did they go to the trouble of using different language? Specifically because this is English common law. They don't want a domicile because they don't want the same definition that domicile applies to because of its legal connotations. That gets into another explanation I'm not prepared to get into right now, but I can tell you that the reason it's used now is because every one of you in every state has consented to a domicile in a federal statutory state and this is how yeah, you're they, being they use the word
1: now for the exact same reason they avoided it in the past
2: so all of these changes, my state constitution i one of the things I love to do in my research is use control f to start counting words, so i 'll hit the word inhabitant i 'll hit the word "state and i 'll count literally start checking boxes, hash marks, count, count. The counter tells me right away. If I hit the word petition in this 900-page document, that's how I found out there was 2,500 petitions because it tells you, and then you start clicking, and then you start reading petition, petition, petition. What did it use? Why did it use it? Why did they remonstrate? What does it mean? And over and over and over again, my state constitution, not only did they give it a new statutory definition, but they replaced the word state in the style of the Oath of Allegiance, in the title of what the governor is the governor of. He's no longer the governor of a sovereign state. He's now the governor of a statutory corporate state. Because any of you studying the subject will notice one thing, that almost every piece of federal encroachment upon the states is all derived through the Commerce Clause over and over and over again, this is the excuse used to trample the sovereign, the sovereign states and their rights. And so I'll get into that in the straw man explanation in a minute. So um, the, the state constitution, what I found was, why did they go to all this trouble to make these changes, to give them substitutes? It's because the word domicile is not defined in the state constitution the way inhabitant that I just read to you is. so. But the constitution here still says the same thing. Every person qualified as the constitution provides. This is one of the challenges of my remonstrance that I filed. I didn't get into that, and I'm going to get into that later, is that when I filed my remonstrance, I was exposing this. I was exposing the fact that that the... Uh, the use of all of these components and the changes of our voting laws is fraud, it, and it, they need to stop. But I digress. So uh, the use of the word domicile is now open to the legislative process because there is no constitutional definition of domicile because it was inserted in 1976 for nefarious reasons. To show you how scummy and how serious of a conspiracy we have on our hands here, Our changes to our government, here I have this written. I wrote an entire dissertation and a presentation on how corrupt our bar association here is in New Hampshire, and I wrote this to explain it. Hang on. Give me a second. Okay. Give me a second. Give me a
3: second.
2: Okay. Here, this is really good, I just found this while scrolling. The definition of body politic, government, and corporations. This comes from Bouvier's Law in 1856, quote, when applied to government, this phrase signifies the state. As this person, as to the person, I'm I'm going to start over again, because I, I didn't stop at the period. When applied to state government, this phrase signifies the state, period. As to persons who compose the body politic, they they take collectively the name of the people or nation, and individually they are citizens when considered in relation to their political rights and subject as being submitted to the laws of the state but when it comes to the corporate factor it's different quote when it refers to corporation that's who the straw man is the all caps person that you've heard about when it refers to corporation the term body politic means the members of such corporations shall be considered as an artificial person a law dictionary adopted the constitution of the laws of the united states by john bouvier published 1856 this is incorporated in my state In 1791, February uh, passed an act for regulating towns and choice of town officers, and be it further enacted. Quote, the inhabitants of every town within this state, spelled with a capital S, are hereby declared to be a body politic and corporate. I'm going to stop there for a second to explain this. Those of you who know your history know that under the English rule, the subjects of the colony had to appeal to the colonial governor or the English Parliament or the king himself for corporate charters. This was designed specifically because you didn't need permission of the legislative body or the or the or, uh, of the general court in order to gain uh, to do business under your own name, to do business as yourself. And so I'm going to repeat the whole sentence and add the part that I left out because I stopped. The inhabitants of every town within this state are hereby declared to be a body politic and corporate, and as such by the name of their incorporation may sue and be sued and prosecute and defend any action or suit in any proper court in this state. And that is the whole purpose of the straw man. The difference is if you go back and read that, as such by the name of their incorporation, in that the word there is spelled in the possessive tense, T-H-E-I-R. So if you choose to incorporate, if you choose to create an all-caps name for yourself because you want to do a DBA, doing business as your name, this is the means by which here in New Hampshire The statutes define the purpose of creating the all caps is to discern or to separate and make obvious the difference between you, the natural man, and the creature of law, the ends legis, the legal fiction, quote, the all caps name. I did five years of study on this. I did, I read everything I could read and, and fundamentally I was led to go to my state government. I filed a right-to-know request of the state registrar, the man responsible for issuing the infamous birth certificate, the, quote, bond. Then I did the same with my Division of Motor Vehicles. The Division of Motor Vehicles refused to cooperate and simply cited the statute that said they had the right to use your name, ignoring the obvious text of my request to explain why they alter the style of your name in direct opposition of the Government Printing Office style manual that's been in existence for more than a hundred years, why do they intentionally violate the rules that govern how law is written? And, of course, no one wants to answer the question. Ultimately, I found the solution underneath corporate, corporate governance because corporate oversight was, here in New Hampshire, we've lost control of the issuance of corporate charter and our judicial branch of the legislative body and at at the time you would one of the ways you would one of the reasons you'd petition the legislature for is exactly that purpose if you were going to create an llc and you would do so and this is where the creation of the all the the, the separate names so they delegated that power here to our our Secretary of State. So if you go to NewHampshire.gov and you enter word search for is this DBA available? And you enter your name and and your proper spelling. It'll come back available. It's more than likely. It's highly unlikely it will come back as not available. But it'll come back and it'll be spelled in all capital letters and you can purchase this registered trade name so that you then become the custodian, because guess what? When Gus and I both became citizens of New Hampshire, we did not create the all-caps name, the person who the the author of the certificate did. I I didn't create my naturalization certificate. My state government has concurrent jurisdiction under the Naturalization Act to grant state citizenship in my state superior court. So when I signed my document, they didn't give it to me right away. It came in the mail three days later with the all caps publication of the name. And like I said, I ultimately found the solution where? Under the Commerce Clause. Because what is, uh, one of the things that makes me crazy, the average person is completely unaware of the limited relationship you truly have with the federal government. Other than the post office and compulsory Social Security and being compelled and extorted into federal taxes, you don't have a real relationship with the federal government. I did a a teaching on this last week on explaining the true consequence of the three entities that who are the parties to the Federal Constitution? Bear with me for a second. I know I'm making a turn here, but it's worth the turn. Uh, right well, here. Hey, hey uh, Daniel, while you're doing that, I'd like to let everybody know
1: that you did a, uh, you did a session, a, a training session for the Secretary of State's office and a bunch of attorneys and so on, that there's a video of that, and uh, really soon we're going to have that on YouTube.
2: Yeah, I was oh, very honored. Yeah, I was, thank you for bringing that up. Uh, Bill Gardner, our Secretary of State, is the oldest, longest serving Secretary of State in the United States. He took office in 1976. He's an old man. I was very honored the other day. He actually called me, um, and we, we talked on, on the phone for an hour. And again, uh, I'm going to say this just to bring context uh, to the level of my research uh, because. Uh, I I don't like to brag about myself, but he said in front of several representatives while I was sitting in his office, he told them all pointing at me, he says, you know this guy, Dan, I've never met anyone like him. He knows more about the state constitution than anybody I've ever met, and uh, he knows more than the judges do, he knows more than the lawyers do. How do we get him in court? How do we get the depth of his study and make it public information? And the reason he's given me that type of public endorsement now is because he appreciates, as a historian himself, that he appreciates the fact that someone a generation younger than him has taken the passion and, and, and care and concern of discerning and understanding this wonderful document that's been, that has been says our inheritance. And, and, and he's appalled that other people don't know this. And so that's why he asked me, and it was in that meeting that he requested that I do a, a lesson. And so here I am. I didn't go to law school, but I, teach, I taught them a, constitutional, a state constitutional law class to a bunch of lawyers who should have learned this stuff. They're all bright men, but they're not teaching it. And they're not teaching it because, again, our states have all been federalized. There's a popular, there's a popular person that's been on the internet for the last few years, a woman in Alaska who refers to herself as Judge Anna. Sure, she's a nice enough person, but she has, was, was really a catalyst for me to do some important research because she challenged some things and I had to discern, fact check, you know, what her position was and, uh, you know, she brought about some, some things that I've now discerned as not being factual because I found that that some of the things, if you don't do the full circle, in other words, if you don't chase the rabbit hole all the way to <coughs> a final conclusion, you are, um, uh, let me use a martial arts example in, in my dog training background. Um, there are things that many senseis will tell their students, that I couldn't teach you those things when you were young, because you had to come to a particular level of understanding before you could be prepared for and understand the complexity of the next step of the next step. And the same applies with studying law as I've gotten to understand. And so uh, she helped me suss out some of these issues. And, but no, I completely uh, disagree with some of these issues, and uh, I lost. I apologize. I lost my train of thought because I'm doing this off the top of my head and not reading from a script. But no, she, she brought some things I don't agree with. and um, Well, I, I'd like you to
1: actually cover those things because uh, I know for a fact that there's people here on this call that are from Alaska. I invited them. I talked to them for probably a half hour after I spoke to you today and invited them to the call, uh, Maria you know, and some friends are on, and uh, she's going to probably be asking you some questions later, but she's planning on sharing. She teaches a common law class at this. She's been teaching it, I think, every Wednesday for the last three or four years and uh, okay. before congregation. And so there's a lot of people that are going to be hearing this, and I'd like you to cover that part about what Anna told you you
2: could not do. Well, the first thing that she... She was fascinated by some of my work because some of my work started to get to Alaska pretty quick when I filed my remonstrance. And so she gave a... She acted as if she was knowledgeable by basically dressing me down because she was under the mistaken assumption that I'd filed a petition. And she made a joke about the fact that, of course, you don't ask your legislative body to do anything for you because they won't. She's at, she was correct... But what she was unaware of is I didn't file a petition. I filed a remonstrance. So, uh, but what she had said to me in person on the telephone after we got to speak one time was that I could never achieve any type of standing or status because that was a right that was only available to those who were native-born. And so that's what put me on a very important journey, which was to understand Exactly, excuse me. exactly what rights do I have, exactly what are the ramifications of my naturalization process. And had she not actually, in my opinion, been wrong, and I, being compelled, just because I'm stubborn, being compelled into proving her wrong, telling me no was a bad idea, uh, I just have been questioned everything all my life, I set about proving her wrong over the great many issues, and one of them was the fact that, yes, one, I could correct my status, two, understanding what my proper status was, understanding, for example, uh, the consequence, the, the class I taught last week, I basically, I'll speed read through the process, I basically explained New Hampshire created a constitution on January 5th, of 1776 because they were void of any form of government because the colonial governor was in conflict. The Revolutionary War was getting ready to begin and he was in conflict between the colonists, his neighbors, and the King of England and he didn't know who was going to kill him so he screwed. So he's gone and we have no functioning English common law or any courts or tribunals. So New Hampshire declares its independence on June 15th the 13 English colonies declared their independence from England on July 4th. That leads to New Hampshire ratifying its own constitution. I covered Article 1, 2, and 12 earlier. That leads to New Hampshire being the ninth state on June 21, 1788 to ratify the federal constitution for the United States of America, establishing a compact between the 13 sovereign states. And by the way, folks, most people ignore the last article in the, in the Federal Constitution, which should be the most. Who are the binding parties to the compact? The, we the people, as Patrick Henry famously said when he debated the convention or in, in, fed, in, in Virginia, in the convention uh, to whether they would ratify the Federal Constitution, he said, we the people, he said, "Who the, who is we the people? You must be talking about, some national central democracy. How prophetic. No, he was, they basically he was pointing out it wasn't we the people who are, compa- who are members of the compact. It's the states because Article 7 says what? If nine of said states ratify said constitution, it'll be binding on the nine states that ratified it. I'm paraphrasing, of course, but that's the crux of what it says you have no relationship with the federal constitution i'm going to explain that in a second so <laughs> excuse me so this comes into existence what's the consequence so i went on to explain the words citizen of the united states are defined by the constitution as a citizen of the united states a citizen of one of the states united and it first appears in article 1 section 2 and 3 article 2 section 1 in other words What is the first thing the people of the states do? They create the means by which they're going to select their delegates. Who do they call those people? And they use the word inhabitants of the states are constitutionally defined in the federal as those persons qualified to elect their representative to federal offices. Citizens of the states are defined by the Constitution, as the federal Constitution, as citizens of the US, United States, as persons qualified to represent the states in the federal offices. That leads us into the three entities named in the federal Constitution. You have, three, you have two jurisdictions. You have one state, one federal, which means you have the common law jurisdiction of the state, and you have the admiralty jurisdiction of the federal corporation, the body corporate. Remember, James Madison, and I pulled this up just for you, Gus, when I told you that James Madison said this, I'm going to quote now that I have it up. This is a quote from the records of the Federal Convention, August 20th, 1787, quoting Madison. The United States shall be forever considered as one body corporate and politic in law and entitled to all rights and privileges and immunities, which bodies corporate do ought to appertain, is cited on pages 341, 342, and 335. So those who argue that the Organic Act of 1871 is when the United States government became a corporation didn't do enough homework. It was intended to be a body corporate because even in our towns and our state, The reason there is a municipal corporate charter granted was done ethically on constitutional grounds so that they could do the financial business of the sovereign constitutional state. That's not who our statutory corporations are today. Those entities are a completely different entity, which leads me... which. I accidentally walked into one of the things Anna used to teach, that there's a corporate overlay, there's a corp- there's an o- there's an overlay constitution. No, there is no such thing. The Constitution for the United States of America was the proper language, but then people read into that that they changed it. Oh, the United States Constitution and this and that. No. Yeah, I've, I've, second- I... There's, there's no second document the second document there is none is there? there there is none
1: i i've got i own books from way back when it was original you know the right. the first ten years, and right. it is no different then than it is today. I've had that argument with people i've showed them the you know the actual books you know the, the you know i I've got a book it's it's the constitutions of all the original states printed back then you know it was it was printed right. in right. you know I don't know 1805 or 1808 or something like that. Yeah, it was it was right at the beginning. Nothing's changed. Yeah.
2: Right, right. So, uh that that angle, you know, I debunked that angle which wasn't true. But back to um uh, back to the jurisdiction of the state and federal government. Hang on a second. So, there are three entities named in the federal constitution. There are citizens of the United States and as I said earlier, whenever you see the word citizen of the United States, know that the federal constitution and all of the amendments written pursuant thereof, regardless of it's the first one or the 26th amendment, where the, where the word appears, it means the same thing each and every time it's used. It's, it's being used because it's capitalized. Citizen of the state is defined as a citizen of the United States, a citizen of one of the states united. As I alluded to in Article 1, Section 2, Section 3, Article 2, Section 1, Article 3, Access to the Federal Courts, Article 4, Section 2, the Privileges and Immunities Clause, the 11th Amendment, the 14th Amendment, the 15th Amendment, the 19th Amendment, the 24th Amendment, and the 26th Amendment, all use the word citizen of the United States, regardless of whether from the 14th Amendment onwards, Do You see the word spelled with a lowercase c or otherwise means the same thing it did the day it was written. That is referring to a citizen of one of the states united. That's what it meant in the beginning. That's what it means today. It doesn't mean I went down a rabbit hole on the 14th Amendment. I chased the federal citizenship down that road. I accidentally was led to believe that because they changed the language to a lowercase C, that the 14th Amendment created a second class of citizenship for the freed African slaves. There's some truth to that, but what, it didn't, what the 14th Amendment fundamentally did, what the 13th, 14th, and 15th did, was conferred federal jurisdiction where it didn't exist. So when you see the word citizen of the United States, it's explaining You're talking about federal jurisdiction because the state, the federal constitution refers to anyone who is an American citizen in a singular language. In other words, a citizen of Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut are always referred to. And be careful when you're signing your driver's license application, your voter registration. These are the means by which in New Hampshire they're trafficking you. The first thing they do in my New Hampshire uh, application for a driver's license is, are you a US citizen? Not a citizen of the United States, but using the federal context. Then they ask you, are you a resident of the state? And you check yes, because you don't know any better. You don't know that if you checked resident of the state that you're a resident alien of the constitutional state, you have no state constitutional rights, and you are not, uh, not only do you have no constitutional rights, But you are domiciled in a federal territory and and you're none the wiser and you just go along with it. Then when you file your voter affidavit, it's the same thing. Are you a U.S. citizen? You say yes. Are you domiciled in a statutory state? You say yes. Guess what? Now you better pay federal taxes because they got you by the you-know-what. There's a famous tax case here in New Hampshire where these people protested paying federal taxes. Uh, Gus knows it well, the Browns. And one of the things they did to them was the federal prosecutor put Mrs. Brown on the stand, and he asked her, remember, folks, you're not in, you cannot control the forms they put in front of you to file. But what you can do, remember, each of those documents is an offer to contract. Bill Gardner, our Secretary of State, told me how to do this. He said, this is an offer to contract. If you don't like the language on the offer, put a line through it, amend it, And if the recipient accepts the amended change, now you have a compact. I did the same thing. I changed, you can't get off the voter roll here because unless you move to a new jurisdiction, they won't remove you permanently from the voter roll. So what I did when I did my name change, and I'll explain that in a minute is I went back and I changed every single place, like a woman who gets married who wants to do a name change. You can go back when you do your status correction and change every previous legal presumption ever made against you, and this is how they got Mrs. Brown. They said, Mrs. Brown, are you a U.S. citizen? She said, yes, I am. Remember, the jury is full of ignorant people that are, are smart. They just don't know any better. They've been brainwashed like we all have. Are you a US citizen?" she said, "Yes, I am." Walks over to the table and said, "Do you have a passport?" And she said, "Yes, I do." He picks up her passport application and said, "Is this and walks it over to her. and says, "Is this your application?" She said, "Yes, it is." And 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 she, "Is that your signature?" She said, "Yes, it is." He looks at the jury made up of all people who've consented to federal jurisdiction and said, in other words, Mrs. Brown, the United States government is good enough to provide you consulary services around the world for your protection, but it's good, not good enough for you to pay federal taxes? She was screwed. Because on the stand, she consented to the jurisdiction. And, and this is the simplicity. Most of this stuff is right in plain sight. We just have to refocus ourselves, go back and understand contextually, who are the parties? Who are, who are you in these contracts? As I said earlier, the state and federal constitution are protection contracts. I just went down the list of who the citizens are of the state and where they are named in the federal constitution. The next party is the states. The states are named in Article 1, Section 10, Article 5, which is the famous place where the, the federal convention itself was what? The, federal, the, the, the states united amending their, their Articles of Confederation, and that's where the federal government can convene a convention, and the states can send delegates so we can amend our federal constitution. I believe, I'm going to step on this for a second, I believe that right now that's too dangerous of, of an act. I believe we've got to restore our state constitution and our state control or the control of the people over their states, before we attempt to send people there, because if we send idiots there, we'll get bad results. But I digress. Article 1, Section 10, Article 5, Article 4, and Article 7. Those are the four places where it specifically talks about what the state can and cannot do. Last, Admiralty Law, the federal corporation, the body corporate, the body politic, those enumerated powers are, sum, are, are summarized in Article One, Section 8, right? The 18 enumerated powers, that creates Washington, D.C., Federal Territory, that it, which ultimately creates statutory states in the states. It creates statutory United States citizens. It creates artificial persons, residents, and domicile. All so that the commerce clause can apply to you. I argue today that the all caps name, the statutory person that I alluded to earlier, that is a creation. It's the creation by the state or the federal government of a commercial instrument. That commercial instrument is, me, is the means by which you are dra- your, your fictitious person is dragged into a statutory jurisdiction and you go along with it because you don't know any better. And this puts in motion uh, the whole trafficking process. Now, I'm going to go on to statutory states. Statutory states comes into existence. I read to you folks earlier the definition in the preamble of The State Constitution of New Hampshire as it defines a state. Now, I'm going to quote, give me a second here. I'm going to go online and pull up. I didn't pull it up earlier, so forgive me. Here we go. My service is being fast this evening. Thank God. I'm logging into my state statute so that I can read verbatim exactly what it says. So someone along the way, and they didn't even time stamp when, but this is under statutory construction granting my state legislature the means to do this. They're going to redefine the word state by statute to give it a whole new meaning. And I argue, if none of this is relevant, then why did you do it? Why did you replace the word state in 96 places in my state constitution without the amendment process and then statutorily give it a new definition? Let me quote 21.4, Twenty-one-four state when it is, is, is spelled capital S, United States spelled cr- properly, capital U, capital S, states. The word, quote, state when spelled with a lowercase s. When applied to different parts of the United States, comma, stop. Who does the applying? I'll read it again. When applied to different parts of the United States, who does the applying? May what are you reading? Are you... I'm reading reading the statute itself. 21 colon 4? Yeah, 21 colon 4. May extend to and include the District of Columbia and the several territories, so-called the words United States shall include said districts and territories. Okay, well, let's look at my favorite subject, the Division of Motor Vehicles. If you go into our state statutes and you go to DMV under Driver's License Compact, statute 26377. And I'm clicking on it now, and it says, quote. Now, remember I alluded to earlier Article 4, Section 2, the Privileges and Immunities Clause? We don't need real ID. We don't need a driver's license compact because it's not required, because those rights and privileges are already delegated powers under the Federal Constitution. They're not necessary, but they exist for nefarious purposes. So. Compact, definition, right? Give me that RSA again. 263 colon 77. Thank you. So under driver's license compact, article 2, definitions. As used in this compact, quote, state means a lowercase s state, territory or possession of the United States, the District of Columbia, or the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico couldn't be more clear. State, hold on, you, you did hear me right. State means a state, territory, or possession of the United States. A sovereign constitutional state is not the possession or territory of the corporation. Except if you understand it contextually. Let me go to an important case citation. Give me a second. I found a brilliant document that explained federal jurisdiction in the encroachment on the states through the Commerce Clause. And the title in this particular chapter is Federal Regulation of States. One, quote, state sovereignty limitation. Principles of state sovereignty reflected in the Tenth Amendment limit Congress's Commerce Clause power to regulate state activities. Two, and here's the case, here's the citation. In national, in national League of Cities, subsequently overruled, the national interest in including the states under regulation was balanced against the intrusion on state sovereignty. Three conditions were used in determining if state sovereignty was violated states as states, caption, direct regulation of state or its agency, B, traditional state functions, C, Impairment of state ability, quote, to structurally or to structure integral operations in area of traditional functions. In other words, those three tests in that case were used to defer, to to discern whether you're dealing with a state within a state. There's a huge problem. The founders, the 13 original states, when they wrote the Constitution, also created Article 4, Section 2 that said No new states. In other words, the expansion to the 50 states we have today all falls under Article 4, Section 3 that says that you have to submit, the state legislature has to surrender a portion of its land jurisdiction like it did with Washington, D.C. It has to surrender some of its state land and the state legislature has to consent. And then you get into Part 2 that the federal legislature has to consent also. Guess what, folks? There's never been an amendment of our state constitution to grant this statutory state, nor has the federal government ever had an amendment to grant this federal state, which leads me to, I have to go to to the next part because I'm there now for for odd reason. If anyone listening understands, Washington D.C. is not a state. Washington D.C., Puerto Rico, Guam, and any federal territory is stateless. It has no state constitution. It doesn't elect any members to Congress or to the Senate, nor does it elect or does it send anyone there to represent their interests. They are under what jurisdiction? The Federal Congress, the 10-mile square. So how does the federal government, when its own statutes that regulate naturalization, say that it only can confer the nationality of a state upon an individual applying for citizenship. How does it do it? It does it by this very act of creating a state within a state. Specifically in federal law, when you study any chapter in federal law, you'll find the same thing, a definitions chapter. Read those definitions chapter, because there's a lot of gold. And if you don't read them, you'll read out of context what they are. What someone did is said that when The word state is used in the naturalization law, it can include Washington, D.C., Puerto Rico, and Guam. In other words, a United States citizen is a federal statutory citizen that is the derivative of a federal statute. It is not a constitutional citizen of the United States. They're not the same instruments because, again, that is treason against the 50 sovereign states that it represents. How can a corporation make citizens unto itself? It can't, but it does. And it does it by that very instrument, by granting the same privilege to federal territory to confer American citizenship to people who live in federal territory. So I explained the statutory state, I explained the statutory person, and now I got into the U.S. citizenship. I just explained to you what a federal, and even the language is different. In my driver's license application in New Hampshire, and my voter registration, they use the inverse. In other words, if you understand the rules of grammar and syntax, citizen of the United States is the opposite of a United States citizen. By its very spelling and the order of the words, right? Citizen in the last one is the, is the word, and the modifier is what? The United States, a United States congressman, United States attorney general, right? Instruments of the federal government. When you have the inverse, citizen of the United States means a citizen of one of the states united. But that's not what all our laws are written because Everything has been federalized at the state level, and just by this trickery of a statutory person, a statutory state, and a statutory federal government, are you now under federal jurisdiction? Gus. Hello? Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead, Gus.
1: No, no, go ahead. I was... uh... Somebody wants to call you tomorrow. I told, I, I I was giving them my uh, my email and, and phone number.
2: No problem. So that's the backstory on that. So let me go back to uh, I was starting to tell everybody what I've done so far. I stopped with the federal court.
1: Hey, I, hey I, Daniel. I, yeah. We're 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 coming up on uh, an hour and forty five minutes, and I want to do a little bit of Q and A with Maria from uh, from Alaska. And it sounds like you have a lot more to do. So I'll tell you what, uh, give me the most important stuff you got on you know, on this. Go wherever you want, but in about five minutes, I'd like to do a, a quick Q&A.
2: Perfect. And I'm going to go right to the state remonstrance. So what I did, once I came to the knowledge of what a remonstrance is, I filed one with the state legislature in May of last year. Human behavior is predictable. As a a dog trainer and training service dogs for more than 30 years, I've been studying human and animal behavior, and it's very predictable, especially when you know that people will always fundamentally look to make their own position better. So I, I got exactly what I predicted, and I basically baited these people into a federal lawsuit. What I'm going to do is I'm going to prosecute these people as a private attorney general and I'm going to prosecute them in federal court under deprivation of due process. What I did is I filed a remonstrance on May 20th where I outlined many of the changes I've discussed this, this evening about the changes that have been illegally achieved by violating the procedural due process of amending our state constitution. What they did is they ignored the document. I Two months into it I filed or I requested a meeting with the legal counsel for the House of Representative, had a meeting there, they, stu- they their, their excuse was that uh, I didn't meet the rules of procedure that pertain to a petition, and I argued this isn't a petition. You don't know what you're talking about. And so uh, it didn't go anywhere, and to this day as we speak, they're actively concealing remonstrance number one. I filed a second remonstrance on January 6th over the red flag law. I did it for an important reason. I anticipate that the defense that they will try to use will be that, Your Honor, we're sorry. Mr. Rich, Mr. Richard invoked something that we haven't seen for 150 years in this state. We made a mistake. We were wrong. Please forgive us, and we're sorry. That's, that's a way for, you know, uh, one of their cronies, a member of the bar, to left them, let them off the hook. So I says, okay, I'm going to do a second remonstrance because I want to prove that their behavior the first time wasn't a mistake. So I filed one on Monday the 6th, challenging the red flag law. Again, what I did is I established my standing as a state citizen and, and my contractual rights to hold them accountable. Then I articulated the state constitution, and then I, brought, then I argued the point why what you're proposing to do is illegal, why you're violating my rights. So two days later, my representative that's working with me was pulled into the speaker's office, and, and they informed him that they were going to acknowledge receipt of the remonstrance and publish it in the next calendar, which they did do. The problem was that the legislative session began on that morning, on the 9th, or excuse me, on the 8th, on a Wednesday, the 8th of January, and the Speaker intentionally withheld from the entire legislative body this remonstrance that showed that what he was proposing to do was illegal. Our House rules, uh, uh, the rules of of, uh, procedure for the House of Representatives forbids any committee to make any recommendation of a bill. No committee can give a positive recommendation to a bill that violates any article of the state or federal constitution. But he went ahead and did, did so anyway. This bill, this red flag law, came out of committee with no recommendation. And what did he do? He obstructed justice. He deprived me of my fundamental right to protest an unconstitutional act, the violation of his oath of office. He affected the outcome of a legislative session. And then he obstructed an investigation into his oath of allegiance, uh, his oath of allegiance to the state constitution. So that's where I've got them. And so now what they have done is I can prosecute them for violating my rights to due process. I can be wrong on the merits of my argument, but what you can't do is you can't deny me my fundamental right to lawfully give notice and protest an unconstitutional act. And the difference fundamentally all wraps up into this that I was going to lead with, and I'll close with this. Public immunity. Public official immunity can be... A qualified immunity is a conditional defense that protects public officials who have acted with a reasonable belief that they have not violated the plaintiff's constitutional rights. A qualified immunity cannot be invoked by officials who knew they were violating the Constitution, subjective bad faith, caption, or who should have known they were transgressing a clearly established constitutional rule. So, when I filed a lawsuit, They're going to, it's already written, it just has to be filed, and when I file it, they're going to go back to the Attorney General, because here in New Hampshire, they have seven days to report a lawsuit so that the AG can determine whether state resources will be used to defend the actions of a public official. He'll have to determine three things. Were the actions constitutional? Because a state act that is unconstitutional is not a state act. It blows their qualified immunity. Second, was their behavior wanton or reckless? Of course it was wanton or reckless because I gave them lawful notice. This has been the problem. We've been unable to prosecute people who violate their oath of office. Someone taught me an important lesson. As James Madison said, people have a property in their rights, and people have a right to their property. They're one and the same. And so when they trespass on your rights, to trespass on your property now we have the means to prosecute them so when these jerks go to the AG the AG is going to say well didn't Mr. Richard warn you and 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 I'm in receipt of his remonstrance not only did he warn you you ignored him and not only did you ignore him you went ahead and violated his rights some more while continuing to ignore his rights that gets into I mean, all of this gets into nonfeasance, malfeasance, and malicious conduct. This leads to triple damages in in federal court. So these people are in a bad place, so the AG is not going to be able to defend them. What's the retainer for a federal lawsuit? You're probably looking at 10K minimum. So they're going to find themselves in a very precarious place that they put themselves in. I began this whole inquiry to get public officials to answer questions, and now they don't want to answer the questions because I'm right on the merits of my arguments. Because if I'm wrong, then please let's sit down and have dialogue. And they don't want to do that because no one wants to really give truthful answers.
1: Well, you know, the other thing is if you're wrong
2: and you have a dialogue and they
1: tell you where you're wrong, you're going to correct it, and they're going to be even more screwed. Well, that's, <laughs> that would be the outcome, yes. Yeah, that's just, yeah. So anyway, um, I would really like to schedule another uh, session with you like this, another talk show. I haven't done these in forever. Uh, but right now, uh, you know, we could talk about that tomorrow or, or whenever. Yeah. Uh, but I know Maria's on. Maria, uh, star six to unmute. I'm not sure if Paul Mursky or some of the other uh, New Hampshire State reps are on. Uh, if you guys are on, please uh, star six and unmute yourself. And, uh, Maria, I'd like you to start. And then, um, you know, we'll, as long as uh, Dan's willing to stick around, um, I'd be happy to just keep going. I'm, I schedule this for three hours. Uh, I usually only go two, but uh, this is some really great stuff. So I figured we'd just, you know, roll on through with it. Maria, are you there?
4: Yeah, I'm here. Thanks, Gus. Thanks for coming uh, I on mean, yeah, thanks yeah, for yeah. being here and for your work, Daniel. Can you guys hear me?
1: I yeah, can. we can. And for, for those of you who don't know, Maria ran for Lieutenant Governor of Alaska in 2012. She teaches constitutional co- uh, common law classes, and she's awesome. done a, a lot of studying on common law. She's very, very, uh, you know, she's bounced around on a lot of different subjects, chased a lot of rabbit holes. We've talked a lot over the last five years and I, yeah, you know, just wanted to give you guys a heads up, you know, as to who she is.
4: Yeah, and thanks for thanks for your work, Daniel. You've you've joined an exclusive group of people who see it kind of as our duty to study certain issues in detail that invariably prove Anna,
5: Judge Anna, uh,
4: you know, the way she's off the cuff and accusatory, and she's just wrong. Very often, she's just wrong so um <laughs> you're in good company um <laughs> in, our case, <laughs> in our case um it was uh that we were bible enthusiasts because we said that the american common law was based on the holy scriptures and uh, she she said that we were trying to we were you know trying to start a theocracy up here in in the Unincorporated borough of Fairbanks, so
5: right, um, right. Uh,
4: just nuts, crazy stuff. We've, we've been active, a little bit active, in the Jural Assembly movement mm-hmm. that came out of yep. the Jural Society movement of, of yep. John Quaid in California. Are you familiar with any of that?
2: I'm not, but I have, I'm well aware of the Jural Assembly, and... Uh, I did participate here in New Hampshire with another group of people who were uh, a, 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 another group of people trying to establish something similar to Michigan.
4: Okay. All right. Yeah. And and now the Michi- some of the Michigan, one of the Michigan folks, Destry Payne, is up in Alaska, and he and, and Anna Von Reitz have gone throat to throat, and they're diametrically opposed in this um, so we kind of walked away a little bit from that uh, because it it seems like a long shot to me. And Gus mentioned to me one day that this guy, there are a couple guys in the lower forty eight looking at redress and remonstrance. And I thought it was kind of funny because when I first ran into Gus before he met Carl Lentz, he was working on redress in um, in New Hampshire, and so it felt like okay, we're going. We're kind of going back to the beginning now, right? But we started studying those guys, and I do have a petition. We've got uh, a re- a remonstrance in the Alaska State Legislature, and mm-hmm. they're tossing it around like it's a hot potato. But but there's also a petition for redress, and in that remonstrance, the redress is a is a real simple issue. That's about a guy who's who's probably on the call tonight, his, the Department of Natural Resources came into his, onto his land and pushed his hugelbed gardens into his catchment pond, admitted that right. they did it, apologized to him, and he wants, he wants uh, to be paid for you know, this damage. And so that's Absolutely. the very first petition that's gone in to Alaska ever, and it went in this spring okay so that's redress okay and it's a simple sure, one we sure. wanted to start out with something that wasn't huge and wasn't too huge for them to tackle and and then I did a really generic remonstrance that said we need a process for redress you know we, we want to deal with you the legislature and come with a process for redress and I outlined all the reasons why um, mm-hmm. redress of grievances is our right and so that's what's that's what's going on in alaska it's fairly new it happened just before um just before the coronavirus uh outrage outbreak whatever and they shut down the legislature and sent everybody home but um so but they were kind of kind of tossing it around and they told us they were going to wait and see, and if more petitions came in, they might do something about it. Right, right. So I
2: just what, thought. I'm sorry.
4: That I wanted to get your reaction on, on that idea. Yeah. yeah. And, yeah.
2: No, uh, let me address uh, Anna again from this perspective. What I found with her, and she's not the only one. I found a great many people in the Liberty Movement, um, What what is exposed is is a character flaw in some people, who lives are in are are not uh, rewarding enough that a little bit of knowledge goes to their head and it flaw you know it exposes a character flaw, where they stop researching and they want to act like God, Um, and I saw that from her on a repetitive basis. In other words, giving these edicts as if she's you know the Almighty, um, and and then. When when I got to the the multiple discoveries of her being major league wrong over some really important issues, I thought to myself, you know, you ought not be uh, acting so arrogantly, in 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 trying to you know convince the world that you're a real judge. <laughs> number one. <laughs> so uh, then, as it comes to the petition process. I think it's very important that as we go forward to break down the, the appropriate application. What I saw and what purpose of my call to Gus earlier today was, was to find out the application of the petitions that failed and why did they fail here in New Hampshire a few years back when they had reestablished the redress committee. And what I, what I came to understand was that uh, a great many of them were, were fatally filed by trying to relitigate bad cases in the courts. In other words, instead of challenging the constitutionality of the court itself, challenging the, the opinion of a judge as bad law, that would simply go nowhere. Here in New Hampshire, what's happened to us is they, the Bar Association has hijacked the judicial branch, and that's a lengthy conversation unto itself, but when they did so, what they won't do is the the secondary consequence of what they've done is there's no more redress. In other words, you can't take complaints about legislative conduct to the courts because they don't want to touch it because they basically have taken the stance. You do what you do and we'll do what we do. You leave us alone, we'll leave you alone because we don't want you sticking your nose in our business. We like what we have here.
1: Hey, Daniel, just to... I'm sorry, I I completely agree. And, you know, the 72A and all the different parts of the, uh, all the different things that have changed in the last 50 years that they've hijacked the system. Uh, But before, you know, there's no need to get into that. We'll save that for another call. The uh, petition process, redress, remonstrance, petitions, and so on, can you, like, you know, step one, step two, step three, what's the process supposed to look like?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And what I'll do is, I'm going to read uh, from the what I, I went into the archives and from the original 1784 Constitution, from the first rules of the House and the Senate, uh, I have a brief that I've written. So let me quote from it real quick. Here is the obligation. I read Article 31 that the legislature shall assemble for redress of grievance, okay? Now I'm going to read what was the due process that used to exist before the, the current generation omitted, they simply abolished any, any remedy by that means. And so hang on a second, here it is. Okay, the speaker shall designate to which of the standing committees all memorials, comma, petitions, comma, accounts, or other matters shall be referred unless otherwise ordered by the house so the speaker when you read the daily business of the speaker he every day the first order of business was are there any new petitions here on the floor being brought forward by a representative because what they did is under the petition process when you're requesting of the legislative body under the, under a petition to do something for you, you needed a sponsor, even though there have been many petitions in the history of our state that didn't have a sponsor. That, that, that was the fundamental rule, though, is that you would get someone who would sponsor it because he would move your concerns. Uh, an, ex- an example is someone crossing a river crossing. Someone buys the land. There's a fight over the property over the river crossing. It would go to the legislative body over the, over the issuance of the charter. Because someone claimed a previous claim to the land, so that kind of stuff would go on. But the petition would then be would be moved through the legislative body because remember, I said it earlier it 's worth repeating: a petition is what one does when you are going to ask of the legislative body that it perform a task it is constitutionally permitted to do for you, okay. The problem that you take when you go down that road is it's exactly that, it's a request. It goes through a committee. The original due process was each committee, the election law, this committee, that committee would address each issue. In other words, it was the redress committee itself. There wasn't an individual committee, each committee would hear those grievances and so. That was, that was the means by which that would happen. The remonstrance, on the other hand, and I've heard some, some concerning attempts by other people in the country who are t- attempting to use what I perceive is the wrong use of the remonstrance. And what I mean by that, and the reason I think it's a stronger tool than the petition, is that if you remember when I read Article 32, it says you have the power to instruct your representatives One of the most powerful points in our state constitution is what uh, Gus knows, what knows it well is Article 8, which is the origin of the power of people. It says, quote, all power residing originally in and being derived from the people, all the magistrates and officers of government are their substitutes and agents at all times accountable to them. So... When you understand that power and then you use the remonstrance, you have to do the three-step process. So the legislative process for petition is you had to work with a state representative, a House member, a senator, who would move your bill through the legislative process. And if it survived the legislative process and you got what you were wishing for, that would be the outcome. A remonstrance, on the other hand, is the repeal of things that it has done. So uh, in other words, if the government has enacted something that is unconstitutional, if it's proposing an unconstitutional act now, or it's proposing one in the future, you would remonstrate because you you begin the document. And those of you listening should go to G, do Google uh, James Madison's Memorial and Remonstrance and read the brilliant. Because, because, he says because 15 times, he's got 15 chapters, and it's pure brilliance that applies to everyone wanting to learn the power of a remonstrance, and it gives the great detail that one goes through. You create, you, you establish your standing, who you are, you quote the Constitution itself, the state Constitution, and the rights that you're entitled to under it, and then you articulate why this is wrong. That's what I did with the red flag law. I simply said, those of you who know the federal, I said, look, those of you who understand due process and, uh, um, you know, uh, illegal search and seizure will appreciate, you know, the Fourth and Fifth Amendment at the federal level will appreciate the fact that if you want to remove the due process someone's entitled to, you must first repeal that which conflicts with it. Because another important Supreme Court ruling is, All, in this Justice Marshall again, all laws that are enacted must be in harmony with the Constitution. If they're not, they're null and void. So you can't use the remonstrance to to challenge something that isn't specifically a constitutional challenge because it's for that purpose. So you've got a bad court. Yeah, go ahead so uh,
1: just to clarify i I know uh when we talked that you had mentioned that the uh archivist uh did not bring you any petitions from before the Constitution, and as I mentioned earlier today uh, you know when i when I used to go there, I would ask Brian could I see the the petitions for, you know the redress petitions the you know, or you know, whatever the remonstrance could I see what you've got? for June of you know of 1810 or May of 1745 okay cuz it was right. it was long before the constitution that this stuff existed and you're telling me that he said he found, he gave you the earliest ones he could find and they were after the constitution and, and before that made, and that made after, me a mistake on my part okay well before and after what I was able to 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 take note of is when I held these parchments when I looked at these they were very simple the you know a lot of them were the size of a of a large postcard and yeah. on the front was the petition you know some i mean some of them were the size of a sheet of paper but they were only you know maybe three paragraphs on there and right. so on the front was the petition or the you know the the claim you know i i believe redress is a, is a claim for damages and uh on the back was the you know was a statement by the speaker of the house that it was read before the legislature three times voted on and the petitioner is given leave to bring his bill to or her bill to um to the treasury for for compensation and right. uh, nowhere and i had this argument with dan etchek uh more than once and uh had this com- had the conversation there's other state reps that agreed with me but uh yeah, you know, he was uh, he was at the forefront of what was going on back then. Uh, him and Paul uh, Inbertson and, and Paul Mursky and, and a few other guys uh, were really you know dedicated to getting the redress process back on on solid ground. And uh, in in my research, I found no not one instance where a state rep uh, sponsored anything. You know, I had state reps that were willing to sponsor mine, but to the best of my knowledge that was not part of the due process of a petition the legislature shall assemble for the redress of public grievances All right, well if i'm the public and i put a grievances a grievance in you know my understanding is that that was a bill that you know right. no different than than if a state rep presented a bill for for a vote you know i'm putting a you know a claim in for damages caused me by for instance, one of you know my redress was that the attorney general denied me my my right to a speedy trial uh charged me with excessive bail so th- you know these were things that I had put in the uh redress committee studied my stuff, had hearings, I testified, they found in my favor, but before they could bring it back to the legislature for for me to get compensation, there was an election and the new people who came in most you know the democrats took over again and uh, they decided redress was not necessary and they got rid of the redress committee so my stuff just went you know it went stale that was it you know a year and a half wasted uh, even though i've got the findings in my favor i couldn't do anything with them but uh, well, me, as, far on, as, know, as, as far as i know as far as that, two, that two, part yeah. goes with the uh, as far as that part with the sponsoring goes i've never seen it.
2: Well, let me, let me go back to your own example. So I believe that you did the right thing with the original petition, right? Because you weren't challenging a constitutional act. You were, consti- you were ch- challenging the conduct of a public official. So that remedy is different. But when they came in and abolished the redress committee, you can't just summarily abolish your right to redress. And that's exactly what they did. They simply removed the rules and omitted the due process that had existed before. And so where they're going to be in trouble now is that those rules, you can't make history go away. I was able to confirm, at least from the beginning till 1913, I called Dan Itza the other day to get an answer on where are the current rules being archived and how do I find from 1913, to current, where the rules of the House and the Senate, because I wanted to pinpoint the exact day. According to Dan's research, the use of the redress committee or redress process hadn't been used in New Hampshire for 50 years. So that they were trying to resurrect the petition process, but only the petition process, and the remonstrance was never discussed. So that's why I was really fascinated when I started looking at us as, well, these are two different words. They have two different meanings and two different intents. Why? And there was nothing there. So I had to find out for myself because there was nowhere for me to learn about that other than Google. I didn't have any leads. Yeah, and,
1: and it seems to me, you know, after hearing you tonight, uh, it's clear to me that a petition is, is where you wish for them to do something for you. A remonstrance is where you're protesting. And so those are both under Article 32 of the New Hampshire Constitution, whereas Article 31 talks about redress. And every time I've seen redress, it's, it's been a claim for damages against the, against the state.
2: You're absolutely right, and redress comes in both forms, and that's the point. One would be relief by restitution of the state, in other words, ab- abolition of something they had no authority to do. Remember I told you when I had the meeting in the Speaker's office, I told the, the Chief of Staff uh, of the, for the Speaker, I said, look, you need to tell the Governor, you need to reconvene the legislative body, you have a constitutional crisis, and you have to abolish that which you had no authority to enact. So our voting laws are summarized today in chapter six fifty four, which replaced chapter fifty four. If the basis of six fifty four is unconstitutional, you have to repeal the whole chapter. I'm not going to file legislation and ask you nicely to do it. I'm going to sue your punk butt in court. So get with it, post with and get it done. And, yeah. that, and this is what this is what hasn't been done to them so they have acted above the law for too long because basically all of this that you begin so again thank you for prompting me uh for those of you who don't know i saw i saw gus several years ago on my early on in my research when he was doing stuff with carl uh and i saw them on tv and i saw him articulate article 38 and that's when i i started turning that way to really find out and then I, I met someone else who turned me on to uh, the common law grand jury, and that was really the catalyst as to how I set about doing a forensic examination of our state constitution. And secondarily, how it would change.
4: Another question? Sorry about that. Go ahead, Can I ask Maria. Them? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> we're looking at the Mason's Manual of the Legislative Procedure. That's where. Um, that's where Chris Hallett has taken the discussion and Kirk Pendergrass, um, and it talks about petitions and communications going into the legislature, and it talks about that the the you know the rules that the legislature has to follow are are a branch of the common law, and yep. that uh, the petitions and communications will come into the legislature, and you can either send them in. I thought we were supposed to send them in to the um clerk of the general court and that we were looking at sending them to the legislature when the courts of law were um you know they're, they've been taken over uh chris calls it they call it the scene of the crime so going <laughs> to the legislature which, which I think is pretty useful. But the, the, if the crime happens in the courts of law, we're taking it into the courts of justice, which I believed were a joint session of the legislature. And right. so, whatever that petition is or that communication is, you send it in the chief into the chief clerk of the House of Representatives to be read as a communication or petition, and. So I wondered what your experience with that is, and also there is another place in the Mason's Manual that says anybody, any of the representatives can read the petition from the floor. So if it's not going in well through the chief clerk's office, as it is not in most states, then, you know, one of the people's representatives can read it on the floor.
2: Right, right. Um, My understanding. Right, and, and you have a twofold problem. Number one is the current function of your legislative body uh, is l- quite likely full of well-intentioned people who are clueless, and therefore they're going on their feeling. So getting it to function properly is problematic. Uh, uh, the, second, the second issue is uh, arguing, uh, arguing those points with people who don't know any better is futile. Well, you know, and, so
4: and the- this is... If you were to read uh, what I called my remonstrance, because I believe that was um, an instruction to the legislature, I might have to revisit that, but what I called the remonstrance to create a process for the redress of grievances, and I pointed it out step by step as to why we have that right. And also that if they attempt to alter our fundamental form of government, that's a declared act of tyranny. So they right. need to allow us to exercise these basic rights that we find in the, you know, I pointed to the federal constitution in the first article and amendment, and also to Alaska has a, a petition for redress that shall never be, shall never be, I can't remember the exact word, it shall never be uh, abrogated. Basically, it'll, it'll it'll, never be um You'll never obfuscate your right to right? Do you have right to
2: right revolution there?
4: Uh, no, I not, think New
1: Hampshire is the only one.
4: <laughs> no, we don't. But, but anyway, right. yeah, and we, I talked to Gus today, and I said, you know, I know these guys. I've, we've worked with these people for years, probably yep. 10 years on various things, and they're absolutely ignorant. They think they're running a business that state operates in commerce it's not right. the jurisdiction that we we believe we have which is which is land jurisdiction they're operating right. a business they're not acting like our representatives and we knew that so we knew going into this thing this was going to be a learning curve for these people right. um, and, right. and for our fellow statesmen here people right. don't know about this so. You know, it's kind of we're going at it with a little bit of patience and a little bit of let's instruct people on this and let's right. teach people that we do have this right. So anyway, just no, just uh, thank you, wondered thank you. how you felt about all of that.
2: Yeah, um, I would say that the most important thing, uh, connection that I think I've put together here is putting the teeth into the remonstrance itself. Uh, someone who was... a uh, part of our attempt to create an assembly here a few years ago was a very pessimistic person. He kept saying, where's the teeth? Where's the teeth? Who are you going to get to enforce this? This assembly isn't going to work because in the end, you can get whatever indictments you want out of your common law, whatever, and in the end, it's not going to, because no one's going to act upon it. And so where's the teeth? Where's the teeth? So it really motivated me to find a way to how is it that you can hold these people accountable. And it was ironic that I spent so much time learning the 14th Amendment and understanding the remedy that does exist there because I was perplexed for too long because I'd been led astray on the fact that the word citizen of the United States is used in that document meant something different than what it really meant, which is it meant the same thing it always meant. So once I realized I didn't have to surrender my state sovereignty uh, in order to exercise something under the 14th Amendment, then, it, then I, now I realize how I can make it a blessing and an enforcement mechanism. Because the only way I'm going to get any justice, the only attempt, and by the way, all my efforts are being done for two reasons. Number one, to uh, attempt to make it happen. Number two, to document it. And then ultimately, in the end, to take the evidence of the fact that remedy and redress in America has been done away with. There isn't anymore, it doesn't exist. It does. The problem is we keep running into a stone wall. How do we make these people accountable? And so that's when I, that's when I figured out the monetary damages. I said, how do you hurt these people the most? You hurt them in their pocketbooks, because that appears to be the only thing they listen to or respect. And until we find a way to prosecute them, and the only way that I could see doing that is to get a federal jury, sue them under under the 14th Amendment for violating my due process. I walked them right into it, because they arrogantly went right along with it. And now they're in hot water, because there's no way they're going... Listen, I already have in writing from the Speaker's office that they've confessed to de- depriving me of my rights, and they're using the, the excuse that the remonstrance didn't meet the rules of procedure that pertain to a petition. Well, that's a lame argument, because the fact of the matter is you're confessing to depriving my rights to a petition as well, because if we bring that out in open court and we realize that you have abolished the remedy, you've abolished your article 31 obligation. And, uh, and you know, now that I'm on a tangent, let me, let me go one other place. That's important. What I, another thing I want everyone to hear tonight is this, that what we've lost proper understanding of is that when we elect our representatives to represent us here, I can only speak to New Hampshire. They called it the general court for a reason. And, Article 31 is the primary objective of my state legislature to convene for that purpose because it can only enact something written pursuant to a constitutional article. If you wish to expand the power of the state government, we had the amendment process, and you could grant the state government more power, and only through that delegated expansion would you be, would you call that constitutional? So those, I had a friend of mine who studied the common law uh, and we argued all the time. There's no statutes in common law, no statutes in common law. And I said, Richie, listen, I hate to argue with you, but the historical record says that when New Hampshire, which is a common law document that practiced common law for more than 150 years before it was abolished here, is that the proper use of a statute is the right-to-know law that I read you earlier is a great example. The right-to-know is that holding your public officials, that they have to submit any documents or papers upon written request. And so that's an excellent example of a statute written pursuant to a constitutional article. And that's what Article 12 pointed out. So knowing that and being able to stop this runaway legislative state that we have, because guess Who is making all of this possible? Bar Association. I realized early on, by the way, that there was no way that I was going to fight the bar straight on. Once I realized that it was the corrupt institution, the getting back into a whole can of worms with the Federal Reserve System and understanding our monetary policy and the real agenda is our our international banking policy and their lawyers to affect what? Admiralty courts, because we can't do any type of common law when we're dealing with colorable money. If I enter into a common law contract with you for a silver dollar and any other consideration that paints your house, I'd have a common law contract. If I agree to do the same job and we agree to do it in Federal Reserve notes, you can't take me to a common law court of record. You have to take me to a commercial admiralty court because money is legal tender. It's a creature of law. It has no backing. There is no more lawful money in circulation. This was all put in motion intentionally with the creation of the Federal Reserve Act. That's another conversation for another day, but but that leads to the catalyst. Why did the lawyers abolish common law in the state? And what did it do? What it did is it allowed the legislative body through lobbying and the lawyers violating their oath to do what? Enact public policy as if it was law. By writing statutes that are not derived from the Constitution. And how do you get away with that? The people don't know their state constitution anymore. That's why you enact all this colorable law. So now these people go to the state house and they do as they please. And one of my favorite things of the year is, that the government no longer represents the will of the people. What is the will of the people? The will of the people is expressed in their own constitutions, state and federal. What we have now is two political parties, and the legislative bodies are made up of of expressing the will of the political parties and no longer the will of the people, and there's no one to stop them because the people don't even know their own constitution. And that's where it all begins in the state My I do
4: have another uh, kind of another question if I might please do um l l c the the company that Chris Hallett started seemed to have a little bit of some teeth, and that is that when the state creates an office and it has an officer that goes beyond its you know he calls it's known as emoluments violations. He goes uh-huh. outside of the jurisdiction of his office. he exceeds his office. Yep. And a man or woman comes in with their declaration of how they've been harmed, meaning, you know, they come to the legislature with their claim against that the man or woman who holds that office and exceeded the jurisdiction. And so they come with their claim. And um, he comes at it from a stop loss perspective, from an insurance perspective. Right. right. And he well, believes claim. the state has, yeah, they file a claim, but it's, it's also the same as a common law claim that the state should have the, the motivation to distance themselves from that person by impeaching that, that bad actor. Because right. Right. when they do that, then the then the you know the damages go to the the man or woman themselves rather than the state so he says everybody's motivated to impeach those bad actors so i thought that Excellent. was a good theory
2: it is it is and it's again it's another way to finding a way to prosecuting these people because they've been untouchable for so long because our previous generations had failed in preserving our liberty and now those of us waking up on the other side have found us in this wonderful situation called uh, this virus and uh, you know I believe the virus is definitely a biological attack. Uh, whether that attack is the intent is, is, a, is a black ops or not is not relevant. The point is is that clearly it's, it's killing people and uh, but uh, the expression of uh you know quasi martial law um you know people have woken up to something guess what a lot of people aren't too happy about this situation well guess what you weren't involved in your government before now all of a sudden you want to cop up and down and complain i'm sorry you shouldn't have done that you should have been involved
4: can i jump in real quick
2: yeah please do i'll leave you with the quote there's an old quote that says that uh that politics is practiced by the majority of those who participate.
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I I agree with that. Hey, and just want to say, Gus, this is Chad. I I thank you for inviting me. Um, but I'm I'm curious. Uh, this goes a few minutes back here in what was being discussed. Um, with the remonstrance, is it being looked at? If if your status is not correct. And it's not brought about a certain way to hold the representatives and all of them in their correct position. If they're under the corporate position, then you don't have standing to bring your redress, your remonstrance. If that's, that's an for excellent, the evil. yeah, that's an excellent point,
2: and. Uh, it is very important that you understand your proper status and your proper standing, uh, because standing and jurisdiction are the first two elements in, in moving any any litigation right so yep. uh, what i what I basically uh, uncovered and this this was summarized in the voting law because the voting law was directly tied to the naturalization process in, in, in past uh, in the past uh, uh, generations, and that was Here in New Hampshire, all that's required to establish yourself as a state citizen, our, our voter affidavit mutated into the expression of state citizenship at some point during the voting law changes. But all that's required, what I did is I took a copy of the original 1784 Oath of Allegiance that is the forebearer of the current oath that Gus and I took when we were naturalized to become Americans and so that oath exists almost verbatim and I used that oath to do two things one to establish myself as a state citizen and that was key I had a hard time with that for a while people preaching that we we were the we were in possession of individual sovereignty and that doesn't bear out in the history books. What we, the sovereignty we do possess is collectively. In other words, the people collectively are the sovereign. It, we are not a, just a bunch of kings and that you're not subject because you're missing going through the details of what is binding. Why would you be a citizen and subject to any laws? That gets into a whole other conversation, but standing is critical. And I think that it's really – I've proven to myself – that you want to be a citizen of your state because that's where your constitutional rights lie. That's where you have a contractual relationship where you can hold them accountable for violating the contractual obligations of their oath of allegiance. And that's what I'm exposing now is that there's going to be serious, serious damages to New Hampshire once the the three tenants I'm exposing now become public and, and that we get to the end of it, how much litigation will follow after that, I don't know. Uh, but those three elements, when you think of it, a statutory person, a statutory state, and a statutory federal citizenship, we destroy all three of those, and you can literally abolish the, the, uh, the, the, the corporate state because the corporate state only exists because of fraud and the
0: lack of awareness. I, I I agree. I I agree. But with with your status change and being a state citizen, I mean, it's universal basically now where you know, being a state citizen is um being a, a US citizen. And that's all and there that,
2: ever really has been. That's all there is, is that the word on my naturalization certificate uses the specific language that I've now considered a citizen of the United States of America. America being the last word, being the operative word. Everything else before it is the modifier, right? So, citizen, yeah. so that's right. I'm a citizen of a state. And when you look at the naturalization law from 1790 to the current It infers the same thing. Let's cover status correction for a minute. I did uh, a four-step process to correct my status, and you brought up a great point. First thing I did was went online and typed in my name in the business locator. I discovered that my name was available, and I purchased it for $42 or whatever the fee is online. So now I'm the custodian because when the all-caps name was created for you right why was it created it was created to create a commercial relationship with the state citizens that didn't exist earlier on in this in this presentation i covered the limited power that you really have with the federal government if you look at the fact that other than the privileges and immunities clause right to protect your travel to foreign countries because going from state to state they're alien to each other. They are sovereign countries, right, as well as going to Mexico, Puerto Rico, or any other place around the world. It provides your protection to travel. Other than that, tell me where the federal government does anything for you other than the post office. And, and Social Security doesn't count. And ta- federal taxes don't count because that's all manufactured. The Constitution itself provides no relationship with you your entire life revolves around virtually everything that affects your life revolves around with your state government.
0: That's been replaced I, I,
2: with a new instrument.
0: I, I completely agree, but, and, and that kind of goes to my point of if you're coming in as, say, you know, however you want to say it, one of the people. If you right. come in as that, but you have the minimum contacts slash contracts um, social security number and all that and you haven't separated yourself from that then you're under contract law and then that brings in a whole new level of uh, when you can be heard I mean, what, what you're being held well, let, to
2: let's cover the three so I took the registered trade name the next thing I did is made an appointment with the probate court to change my legal name so I went to probate and I to- asked the judge to change and restore my lawful Christian name and she said, Mr. Richard, I don't see the difference. And I said, if your honor would permit me, let me provide you with my naturalization certificate. And so I signed my name as normally required with you know, proper uppercase, lowercase, the way we sign our signature. And uh, I said, if you look, two inches below it is the creation of a, of a change to the style of my, my name that I didn't create. That's not me. That's not, that's not my given name. My name is my property. It belongs to me, and I want my lawful name that, that I choose for myself restored because I didn't do this. So she, she smiled. She lowered her glasses, and she looked at me. She said, I get it, Mr. Richard. If that all-caps name was you, you'd have to sign your name in all capital letters, wouldn't you? The cat was out of the bag. She knew what I was doing. So I've had other people try to do the same thing, and the judges have tried to stop them. And so I tell people, stick to the most important. You want to restore your Christian name. The next thing I did was once you get a court order restoring your legal name, you can do the same thing that a woman does when she changes her name because she marries. So you're going to go back and you're going to change. You give the opportunity to change your voter affidavit, your driver's license, your bank account, your passport, your, uh, any other place. Where there's a previous application, that now that you are aware that you have consented to their jurisdiction, and by the way, your social security card, in all capital letters, I will bet you. Is it?
0: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Mine is. Right. Yeah. That that's that relationship, it that federal relationship, that commercial instrument belongs to your straw man. It doesn't belong to you. But no, now I agree. that you have all. Now that you own the straw man, you're still entitled to the benefits without the obligation because I, that was the means by which they created a commercial relationship to extend federal jurisdiction on state citizens where it previously didn't exist prior to the Social Security Act.
0: I, I agree. I'm, I'm just wondering where, where you separated that from. I mean, mean? A, a change or whatever, but if you're still the beneficiary of all that that's and and you know gus i, I hope i i, I kind of play devil's advocate i'm i'm very appreciative of your knowledge and all that you know but um i i love
1: to see shit stirred
0: <laughs> so <laughs> thanks definitely. well seriously and, I, and I'm, I, I'm not I, i'm not trying to be adversarial it, it's just questions that pop right, up right, you right. know what i i believe that that a proper Q and A like this
1: is necessary to get down to the truth because sometimes we hear things and we misunderstand. Sometimes the speaker says things in a little bit different way than he intended even. Okay? Things can get twisted. And if we don't have a proper Q and A where we just hit each other up in love, in respect, then we're never going to get down to the nitty gritty.
0: Yeah. And and I'm not disagreeing. I, I'm I'm just you know curious it's like are, I those, love, I love minimum the contact, are those i are those minimum contacts being met to create the contractual relationship where you are you know the, the, the basically uh upheld to the contract
2: right right let me share with you something that was going on here and it's still ongoing uh gus you remember christopher Gronsky?
1: Uh, it's been too long. It sounds familiar, but I, I, no, I don't.
2: Christopher is someone who offers services to create his perception of what state citizenship should be. I don't agree with what he's doing, but I wanted to point out what he was doing was basically submitting a, uh, an instructional letter that would attach to a passport application to establish himself and tell the federal government that they're a state citizen and then apply for a FOIA request in order to prove that the application was accepted and processed, void of social security number, void of any claims that you're a U.S. citizen. And and so uh, I found that that was an important study to wrap my head around. So back to the, the status correction part. That's why it was important for me to use the Oath of Allegiance as defined by the state. Once I found that this had been a regular process, I found that certain public officials, the state registrar, the state fire marshal, they have to be a citizen of the state in order order to hold their job. So that got me to thinking, well, hold on a second. If that's the case, then what's going on with all of this, you know, citizen this and citizen that? so i put two and two together and realized that they were entrapping us by five specific ways that i've already alluded to voter affidavit driver's license bank account passport and any other yeah. documents that you might have and so when you change your name you can retroactively and you can retroactively now go back and say and rewrite those like bill gardner had taught me right put a line through my so my voter affidavit what did i do I put a line through it, and I said, I don't have a residence, I dwelleth there. And I don't have a domicile, I have the home there. That's the constitutional language. And so it was accepted. I also changed my name. I said, I'm not a U.S. citizen. I'm a citizen of the state of New Hampshire. Because if you go back to how you are entrapped, these documents are used against you in in when they try to pr- persecute you in state or federal court under those previously assumed arrangements because you didn't know any better, now that you do. Now, I didn't do anything crazy to send it to The Hague and go here and go there and have this birth certificate. There are all kinds of status correction things that, that I heard of. And I said, but you know what? What is the people with the guns and the badges that exist today that I have to interface? What are they going to accept from me? Because in the end, we can talk until we're blue in the face, until we get control of the guns and the rules and the regulations. Um, you know, Enforcing things is problematic. And, and so oh, yeah, it's a whole lot easier.
1: It's a whole lot easier to, to approach it the way you are. You know, I have to interact with these people. And what do they respect? What do they want? What do they recognize as, you know, as, as proper documents and so on? Instead of doing what we think we should do with the Hague and the Postmaster General's office in Switzerland or, or you know, all this other stuff that we hear about, uh, right. you know,
2: what's the local cop gonna gonna look at and say? Oh, okay, you're all set. And that's where when I, when I tied New Hampshire through the whole process and looked at the whole thing contextually, understanding that it all begins with we the people. We the people consented to a form of government called the state constitution. It is those people along with others just like them in the, in the neighboring colonial states who did what? They all got together. They created themselves for themselves a new form of government that they, their legislative bodies consented to, and uh, understanding that that power could have only been delegated by who? The sovereign states that are who made up of the people. So the whole paradigm has been taught to us inverted, and so we've just got the, too many for too many generations. We've had the wrong take on it. And and it's just you know been quite frustrating. Obviously, those of us who have become awake and we've tried to find solutions. You know, a lot of people have advocated, uh, you know, a pot of gold at the end of this golden certificate and the the surety. And I get that, but I I say I say that's not as relevant to the conversation as understanding the importance the importance of how your person's being trafficked. Because I can guarantee you one thing: the word person. Appears a shitload of times in the state constitution in 1784, and each and every one of use, each and every one of those uses of the word "person" is contextually referring to a natural man. It's not the it's not the corporate fiction that comes as a derivative of the 14th Amendment. I don't know if everyone here understands the original story behind corporate personhood, but it comes out of a of a court decision where a bunch of guys argue that they should be entitled as American citizens, it, and I think it ends up in federal court or federal uh-huh. district court, that they, in, that they as, it, as business owners, so five guys get together, they create ABC, LLC, and they want to be able to have the same privileges and immunities they would have in their private capacity. So that's where the word person, it, the, the origins of the corporate personhood emanate from. And of course, now it's been hijacked. So now, when you read legislation, it does what? It adds the word "natural person" and then convolutes the definition by extending that definition. And same. Oh, the definition absolutely. Of state. Yeah, New Hampshire.
1: Uh, New Hampshire, twenty-one colon nine, and uh, and USC one. I mean, uh one USC one they both do the same thing they they extend
0: person into the corporate realm right so and but but, Mike, Mike, but then you have to go you have to go into the you know like unio exclusio where you know that uh-huh. which is not specifically included is excluded and Excellent. if if it's like kind uh you, you know absolutely so what are meaning there um yeah. No, that's a and very
2: important. It, it's a very important matter of fact. That's why I, I mentioned that same term. I didn't use. The, I didn't use uh, uh, that term, that Latin term, uh, when I was talking about the um, uh, the um, the use of the word resident earlier. Right. It, it excluded the word resident from the Bill of Rights, and therefore, residents would not be those that group of people who were entitled to that same privileges and
0: immunity. Yeah. And, you know, I, I thought about this earlier when you I, – I don't know what you brought up about, but the, the word includes came in. It was talking about state and United States. And I, I'm in Minnesota, and there's – I have multiple definitions in the statutes where it says, you know, state semicolon United States, which right there it's saying they're the same thing. And, right. it, and then it says state includes – you know, the United States, uh, Guam, District of Columbia, blah, 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 U.S. Virgin Islands. But right. it's, you know, in, includes is an exclusionary term where if if it's not stated specifically there, it, it's excluded. So it would have That's to right. say, for my the state of Minnesota, you know, includes the District of Columbia, and it doesn't say that. Right,
2: right. That was something else Judge Anna was doing, too, is she was using uh, getting it backwards, you know, that the state of and the state state and mixing mixing up the definitions. And I found everything she was teaching was completely contrary to the you know, to a document written hundreds of years before she ever came into existence. And it was all wrong. Mm-hmm. That was one of my early that was one of my early wake up calls is that no. And then. Um, uh, so it put in motion having to fight people who were her disciples, who I'd meet along the way, and now I'm getting into an argument defending her positions when they haven't done as much research as I have, and they're arguing from a bad bad position.
0: And it's like, well, I'm banging my head against the wall. I don't need this. I'll see you later. <laughs> yeah, I hear you. And I, I'm 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 going to sign off here. And again, I I appreciate everybody on the call, Gus. Thank you for. You know, inviting me in. I hope you'll do it again, um, and I, I'd love to connect with you know the rest of the people on the call also if if you're willing. Um, one thing I would like to say, and I, I'm not trying to badmouth anybody, but um, I don't know if it was Maria, Mariah, um, you know, there there's certain things about Eclaws. I followed them for a long time. I dealt with them for a long time. Great information. Just be careful of their claims of what they've done. That's all I want to say.
1: Oh, it's great to have you here, brother. Really appreciate you, 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 know, you being here. And yeah, absolutely. I'm, I, you know, my phone number, by the way, is six zero three three nine six one zero nine two. My email is grayersk at gmail dot dot org is my website. At the bottom of every page, every page, no exception, you will find my phone number, my email. And feel free to give it to anybody because if somebody calls, I'm answering the phone. Okay, so day or night, I never know when I'm going to be awake. You know, I ask people typically, you know, between 11 a.m. and 5 p.m. to give me a call, you know, whatever your local time is, is fine. And, you know, but, uh, I, yeah, I, I, I believe in networking. I believe we should all be in contact with each other. It's It's much too difficult to find people in your own area. Uh, to connect with so we have to connect with you know who, who we can and so you know anybody at all that gets my number or my email or whatever feel free to call me anytime
5: thank you gus you are
2: welcome, welcome to give mine out as well gus me, me, well if you me, want me, to give it me, out me. go ahead uh, my phone number is 603 315 5755 say it again 603 603- Three one five five seven five five. Email is uh, Gmail account it's, uh, D first initial of my first name D Richard R I C H A R D the number one eight six at gmail
0: dot com. Thank you. And if 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 I don't know if you can Gus, but you can mute me out. I'm 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 done. If I need to add something, I'll. I'll, I'll unmute myself. I'm just not sure how to mute myself Yeah, right just Yeah,
1: uh, just either hit star six to mute out or, uh, to you know, to mute or unmute is star six
0: or you can just mute your own phone out. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank no and, and questions. They thank were great you.
2: questions. Yeah.
0: Thanks for the whole call. I really appreciate it. I skipped another well, one to come on this one because Gus invited me.
1: Well, thank I you. appreciate you being here, man.
0: All right, the
1: floor is open. You know, I'd, I'd like to do Q and A because that's my favorite part of any call. Uh, you know, we, we have to cover some basic stuff first, but Q and A is where it's at. It's where the rubber meets the road, and it's where you find out if somebody's genuine or if they're full of shit. And so, uh, this is it. So, if you've got a question, you know, star six, unmute,
3: and just fire away. Hey, Gus, it's uh, Ryan.
1: Hey, how you doing, man?
3: Good. How are you? Uh, good. Go I, I gotta say that, that this call was it's the first call that I've been on uh since you know we we've been talking and it's it this this was just a phenomenal call and it really synthesized a lot of things that we have discussed and what I've told you what's been going on with me and I, I gotta give a huge shout out to Daniel uh for this information because <clears throat> there are certain things as you know that I filed a status change um and some of the methods as as i 'm hearing with uh, Daniel are are a little bit different. The thing that really smacked me in the head was uh, that he went to probate court to basically you know get a a definitive uh, name change and that 's something that was left field of what I was taught and I know that you know uh, we went through a number of discussions now and how that I have actually been going through that process of this declaration of status through, through a fine-toothed comb just because, you know, come to find out that the person that's, that's you know, uh, offering this product, that some of the things, uh, you know, don't, doesn't smell right. So, and... Um, so, something something I, to take note of,
1: something to take note of, Ryan, is, uh, you know, I, I haven't done one of these shows in a long time because I haven't found it, you know, any... any really good information to put out there that I hadn't already covered. And so, so this is, uh, I'm getting some feedback. Am I on your speaker yeah. or something?
3: No, I'm, I'm, I don't have a going
1: All right, somebody's got me on speaker. So, uh,
5: you know, one of the things
1: about probate court that's really interesting if you think about it is it is where the will, the last will and testament of a man is reviewed that's probate court. So what does Board probate court do?
5: <laughs>
1: yeah, exactly. And it's it's where the will of man is heard. So whether you're alive or dead, you go, you know, you, it's your will that a thing be done. You know, if it's your last will, then you know, obviously you're dead. But, you know, like your last name, is that your last name? No, I'm not dead yet. I might change it. Okay? So your last will and testament is 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 the is the will of man but you know you're still alive your will is to change your name your will is to sure. do something and the probate court's job is to enforce your will
3: uh, that's that's yeah I, I, that's, that's correct and that, that that's a huge eye opener to me because i i didn't see that aspect of it and it was kind of like it wasn't disclosed and uh, the, the final thing i wanted to say was and uh, if if um Daniel is still listening. I, I've actually had experience in, with this and in dealing with, with with the court system and the understanding of the agent and the principal relationship. And that's one of the things that you know. I know when you go through the status change and you, you know, file your DBA or whether you do a non UCC one or whatever, is is knowing how to operate between that relationship. And at every time that you go into their realm for whatever reason that it is, you come in under the status as the agent. As, as one of the sayings that I heard years ago, is that the principal pays and the agent stays, which means that you, you, always, have to, you always have to peer in, in behalf of, of of the principal, because if not, then, you know, if you, if you are, are foolish enough to, to acquiesce and uh, cripple into their jurisdiction, you know, then they're going to railroad you. But once they find and know and understand that you know the difference in that relationship they listen differently they look at you differently and and they're very careful from that point on and how they deal with you actually like i told you that one story before i'm not even going to tell the story but i ended up you know a a, a, a deputy attorney general of pennsylvania ended up getting frustrated and thrown out of the courtroom because they made a scene because i had frustrated their whole plan of trying to make me a uh, trustee so i think that i would say that's an important thing for everybody to understand the, the CESB-K trust, to understand that uh, principal-agent relationship and how to operate that. And I'm sure that um, Daniel would, would agree with that, um, and like it, you know, to whatever degree that he understands it. So that, that's basically all I wanted to say. But I, I, I do thank Daniel for this information, and I'm actually going to begin to uh, move on that.
1: Uh, do you have any questions for Daniel?
3: Is, is Daniel uh,
2: listening? Yeah, I'm, I hear, I'm here, and I did hear a question there, and uh, I wanted to give you a cautionary note, and that is that uh, early on and through the process, I've met a lot of people who have, quote, corrected their status. It was one of the catchphrases I heard early on in my involvement in the Liberty Movement. And what I ended up finding is, is that there were all these people looking for the silver bullet. How can I not play ball with these people? And that if somehow that I did A, B, and C, that I could whip this out and I could be like, uh, you know, uh, fighting off the werewolf with a silver cross, right? Uh, and, and in fact, it, I, I haven't done uh, it, quote, correcting my status for that purpose, even though if pushed into a corner, that would be the purpose of doing it. And the importance of doing it, I think, is that, that you chose to, to, to stand on that status of your own free volition, and it, it becomes problematic for them to prosecute you after the fact. It's a terrible thing to try to use it as a defensive posture. In other words, if you're in the middle of a legal proceeding now, it's not going to be the best thing to do because they're not going to willingly surrender jurisdiction. They're going to try right. to screw you any way they sure. can because they don't want to recognize. you got to remember, we're dealing with, I don't think that most judges are as smart as the people on this call. I they think don't want to the reveal judge, the I don't think that most of them know how much of what I've uncovered has actually happened because they're the beneficiaries of the system. Sure. And so what we're looking at is one of one of my favorite sayings is when i try to educate people is i'm dealing with challenging a belief system i'm dealing with human beings in this state who've been taught all their life that the sky is green no matter mm-hmm. how much i tell them it's blue they're going to say no dan it's green you 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 need to have your eyes checked and and i just can't overcome that because they're they're just of that belief and so I think that extends to the dumbing down not only of our of our culture and of our own citizens but even the legal society because they 've all profited from what we have and that was by design i argue I argue that the real agenda of my state bar association is the second component of its of of its charter right the second the first is the, the illusion of promoting ethical practices, and the second is the promotion of what? Their professional interest. That's code for their profits. Okay? And so this sure. legislative state that they've created, who benefits from it? Who's looked the other way? These people, we trusted these people to know the Constitution. Well here's a terrible reality. If you study enough case law and you understand that case law is being used against us. It, as a fundamental principle, is one of the tenets of common law. But common law isn't just the principle of case law, stare decisis. It's just one of the tenets. But most importantly, it was intended to perpetuate uh, solid, solid predetermined decisions, not to compound bad case law. And so what you've had with all of these usurpations, starting from the very beginning with Justice John Marshall. Again, if you've not studied the ratification debates, um, you know, I didn't get into my early education, but one of my motivating uh, uh, historical uh, lessons was uh, there was a guy on Patriot Radio years ago uh, who's no longer there called um, uh, Mike Church did an excellent teaching On the spirit, he called it the spirit of 76, and he did a mock play of Philadelphia and a mock play of the debates in Virginia and uh, taught me the politically incorrect guide to the federal constitution. So, my education on the federal constitution did not come from a liberal public school. Uh, I got a very squared away understanding, so I, I, I had an advantage when I started my research by coming at it from that context. But um, you know, it's uh, uh, you know been paramount to uh, to deciphering this. There's a rule in common law referred to as the common law rule of construction, right? You have to interpret these things contextually from the time they were written, and so these judges like Marshall, they uh, You know, he created judicial review. I challenge anyone to discern in Article 3 of the Federal Constitution, there isn't a single letter, not one word, that grants the Supreme Court to be the arbiter of the Constitution. They're not the creator of the instrument. The people are. Mm -hmm. The people are the arbiter of what the document says. That's what I want to return my home state to. Return the control of the state government to the people and to restore the rule of law called the state constitution. You exercise the powers delegated to you by this contract, yet you're in breach of this contract. And that's exactly how I'm going after them. So, um, shame on them. I'm not going away.
3: You can't. You, you can't. you got to... Uh stay the course and you know I always uh, to me slow and steady wins the race uh, you have to think these things through which is what I'm constantly going back through my process uh, <clears throat> re- re- reverse engineering what what appears now to be mistakes or oversights and it's just been, and that's the thing is they're they're gonna look for that one it, it's kind of like the like the like the health insurance industry. They're they're going to look for that one little thing that they can peg you with and say, oh, we're not going to do this, and we're not going to do that. And It's the same thing with the court system. They're going to look for that one little nodule that they can use against you, and then it's game over. You know
1: know what the problem is with that? Uh,
3: I am man. You are
1: government. You exist to secure the rights of man. The only laws, statutes, ordinances, whatever that you can pass Or or create are ones that are necessary for you to effectuate your purpose which is to secure the rights of man okay you call it arson you have this wonderful statutory definition of what arson is I don't know what that is okay but when I show up and I say that dude burnt my house down you better move your ass and do something about it because that's your job is to secure my rights. doesn't matter if I'm using the right words or not if I describe to you something that you are supposed to be securing and protecting me from, okay, this guy burnt my house down. Do something about it. Well, you know you have to use the right words, the right punctuation. You have to say it's arson. You have to say it's larceny. You have to say no. I don't have to say shit, okay? That guy caused me harm. This is what he did. Do something. All right. And and all this bullshit about you know technical crap. You know I'll tell you what. Let me. Uh, I'm going to pull this up. I don't know how many people are familiar with my website, Redress for Dummies, but on the main page, there's a red book. It's called uh, English Common Law in the Early American Colonies. I'm opening it now, and I'm going to read to you something that's uh, very important for us to realize of what the people who came here abolished, what they got rid of. All right? So... The conclusions, which is uh, starts on page 53 uh, of the PDF, or 60, 61 of the PDF, but if you're looking at the book itself, I, I've got hard copies. It's page 53. And on page 54, let me, I'm going to zoom in a little bit. On page 54, uh, in his conclusion of, of how, the, how things changed, Okay, and and how we ended up with a great system before the attorneys were able to corrupt it again. It says the records that have been examined exhibit everywhere, especially in the in the popular courts, a great informality in judicial proceedings. The large number of judges in these courts would of itself tend to make it the prac uh, tend to make the practice informal, to make the trial more like a deliberation of a community by its representatives on the justice or injustice of the case involved. The absence of a jurist class, and especially the universal prejudice against lawyers, proves that a popular and not technical system was was being enforced. The technical knowledge of the lawyer was not demanded, and like Letchford, the lawyers had to turn their hands to semi-professional or non-professional work. The courts of the colonies at that date having no need for the aid, no no need of the aid of a trained profession to discover what was the law. As by the custom of the time, the law was in so many cases determined by the discretion of the court. It seems just to conclude that in most cases, the administration of law was carried on not according to the technical rules of a developed system of jurisprudence, but by a popular tribunal according to the general sense of right, the, the general popular sense of right. So you know, these people listened to their conscience. They decided this guy's right and that guy's wrong and that's it. It had nothing to do with technicalities and bullshit. And so, you know, the fact, that you had, the fact that you didn't use the word arson or larceny or whatever word they choose to describe a particular crime or incident or whatever, if you say, that guy ran over my dog, he owes me 350 bucks because that's what it cost me to fix his leg, and, and I want to get paid, okay, you're a man making a claim for actual damages, period. And, it, and when it comes to the legislature and, and redress, the attorney general's office denied me my right to a speedy trial, charged me with excessive bail, on and on and on. This is what they did, okay? It's plain, simple shit. If I don't get the words just right or the punctuation just right, you can't deny me.
5: Your job is right, to secure the rights
1: freedom. of men.
0: Right. What a, a good, uh, if if I can jump in again real quick, Um with with the courts operating on presumptions and assumptions, um, every state, I believe, has this. Um, in Minnesota, it's uh, uh, courts, uh, let me think for a second, uh, courts to take judicial notice, um, and that is what binds them to uh, take notice of the common law, other state statutes, and other case rulings from other states which lots of times they won't do unless uh you know it's got to be like i'm from minnesota they'll be like oh that's not minnesota if you throw that at you
1: but that's exactly the point i'm trying to make okay why should we yeah i'm a carpenter i hung drywall for 30 years okay you know You know, hanging drywall and and knowing the law are very different. You know, if you're a dentist, you know, you're not going to know all the codes and statutes and ordinances. You know, those things are created to make sure the government secures the rights of men. That's it. Okay, we don't need to go to court and explain to the judge what his job is or how to do it or according to what statute or ordinance or, or documentation he's supposed to do it. Okay, his job is to secure the rights of men. Get on with it.
0: Hey Gus, I I anybody? I agree, hundred percent. But you know, when, when they're operating under the capacity they are, then they don't have that obligation, even though they're supposed to.
2: Yeah, uh, Daniel, was that you? Yeah, it was. I was going to give you a really good story about uh, the 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 way common law evolved, and it's a an excellent case here in New Hampshire. It's called State versus Rollins. It, it, it happens in 1831, and what happens is in New Hampshire in, the, in that year, the crime of, of uh, kidnapping has never happened. And so there's never been a charge or an indictment or a prosecution of the crime. So a man from uh, sanberton New Hampshire, goes to Exeter, and he acquires... Uh, a six-year-old mulatto child uh, from the Society of the Poor, in exchange for raising him, uh, he would, you know, he would raise him, and, and the kid would work for him and whatever, right? So the problem is, is that the guy has a nefarious plan. He's going to sell the child as a slave. His cousin is a plantation owner in Alabama. Well, he drives to Northwood, New Hampshire, and gets caught. So. Uh, uh, He turns around and uh, the defense argues, well, there's no statute on the books, so you can't convict my client of a crime that wasn't illegal. And that's where the grand jury, the common law grand jury, having to determine first the law, right? It determined, one, is there a a law in the books? No, but we're a derivative of, of Massachusetts Bay Colony, and Massachusetts, under common law, kidnapping is a crime. And secondly, we're, we're children of England, and the English common law also has that crime. And therefore, uh, since this is considered a common law crime, because there's an injured party, the child, that uh, we've determined that this this is a righteous law. So it's a common law. And therefore... We move to phase two. Is there sufficient evidence that he committed the crime? And, of course, the answer was yes, and he gets convicted. Well, that process puts in motion the way common law really evolved. Because, remember, uh, Gus mentioned to me we were going to read Article 6 in the Bill of Rights, and it's the religious clause. And in the original text, it was comprehensive. These were a righteous, moral people who believed in the Ten Commandments. And what is the Ten Commandments? The evolution of the tablets from Mount Sinai, right? And, and so through thousands of years, through culture, it became common that these basic fundamental things were wrong. And so they all become the result of what? That in order to adjudicate an injury is that you would bring a claim of injury and harm before a, 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 you know a group of your elders. And that's how these things became adjudicated. And the outcomes of this is how the, the evolution of the case law comes, of course. And this is the proper way common law was to, was to function, not what we have today. Again, the legislative body now goes there, and through lobbyists and lawyers who sit in all officers of government, they enact legislation as if it's okay to do, all of it being 90% of it not being a derivative of a constitutional article that grants them the authority to stick their nose someplace it doesn't belong or to change the makeup of government into a, a for profit RICO for revenue, as my old representative used to say RICO for revenue, and he was right, all for profit. That's not, yes, none of that is, it, it, none of it's legal. None of it's hey, legal. Uh,
1: hey. Daniel, one, one of the things that. Uh, there's 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 so many things that you're familiar with that a lot of people who've not dived in that deep are not aware of. For instance, in New Hampshire, we have a thing called legislative services, and I don't know what it's called in every state. I imagine it's different, but in New Hampshire, we've got nine attorneys who decide what a bill will look like. So our, you know, you got 400 state reps that will submit a bill for legislation. And, you know, those bills go to committee hearings and there's much discussion, but before it goes to a committee hearing, nine attorneys decide what the language is actually going to be. Could you, could you uh, expound on
4: what kind of <laughs> difficulty
1: that creates to make making law? Oh, you know, yeah. how, how things get twisted up and where all that comes from? And how long have, has legislative services been around? Since the 60s, the 70s? Not
2: that long. 1963.
1: 1963. Just real quick, this and is yes, John
6: from Minnesota. It's called uh, the Revisor's Office here in Minnesota, Legislative Services, just to contextualize <laughs> it. Right. All right.
1: Is that you, John? Yep. Oh, hey, I'm man. Good in to in have you.
6: Second. Yeah, I'm going to pipe in in a sec, but I just wanted to add the Revisor's Office is the exact same thing for Legislative Services.
2: Okay. Yeah. Yeah, here in New Hampshire, we had a governor uh, take office in 1963 who was a Harvard Law graduate practicing law in Manchester uh, who gets elected to the governor's office, and he's a staunch Lyndon Baines Johnson supporter, staunch Democrat, hadn't had one in almost 50, 60 years. I don't know what they were thinking the year they let him in, but anyway, uh, he serves three terms in the state uh, as the state governor and then steps down from that job to become a justice on the superior court and ultimately becomes the chief justice of our state Supreme Court. So this man committed treason against the people in a multitude of ways, too long to get into in this phone call, and he was the originator of Office of Legislative Services, 1963. Here's the problem with Office of Legislative Services. On its face, it sounds like a wonderful deal that a group of intelligent men will review any proposed legislation and assist citizen legislators in the means by which they can affect public, effective public policy that doesn't, uh, is not in conflict with other public policy and would be lawful. Here's the part. None of them know the state constitution. Guess what they're doing? They're not there to make sure that anything proposed is constitutional. They're there to make it pass. They're there to make it look and sound good. Okay? So what, <coughs> good, what good is a body of, of, of attorneys affecting the outcome of legislation if their goal is not to be constitutional compliance, since that's its primary job? That's their primary job to make sure that's exactly what's going on, that it's even constitutional. They're the very body that allowed all of the changes that I've uncovered. How else did it happen? Someone was watching the hen house. They just looked the other way.
6: Right. Let it it all happen. uh, So this is is John here. So I'd like to jump in. So I I appreciate listening to you, Daniel. And... um, I've got a counterpoint here uh, that I'd like to... Um, so like a while ago, I heard you talk about whether you wanted to change your Christian name. You went back to the court and, uh, you know, we're asking their permission to uh, change it from this style to that style, if I heard you correctly. That's kind of what I understood yes. you to do after you got in the DBA.
5: Yes.
6: So yeah. you know, my understanding is when I go through and I ask somebody for their permission, to go do something, well then they're the the actual owner of it. So, and how I've arrived at that understanding, because if I could do something on my own, I wouldn't have to go ask somebody for permission to go through there and do anything. And So Gus has heard me say this before, is that jurisdiction, when you've been talking about laws, whoever juris comes from, you know, juris is the Latin uh, law and diction means to speak. So to speak law means whoever, In my my understanding, whoever makes it, owns it, rules over it. So whoever is the maker of something, owns it, has absolute control over what they made, and then they are allowed to speak law or create rules for what they made. Because if anybody else were to create rules for what somebody else made, well, that would be a trespass. So here we have, um, right here from the very get-go, we've got man who created nothing. Man is part of the creation, and man thinks that he can legislate over the creation. Yet man, didn't. man is part of the creation, and <clears throat> he, is, uh, uh, he is not the creator, but he is attempting to legislate over the creation. And the only way man can legislate over another man is to create a fiction is to constitute something out of thin air and call it a fiction, call it United States, or before it was a king, it was a title, it was a, it was a role, something that you would act at. So we inverted the pyramid scheme upside down, and now we call it all the people, we the people, which is a fiction, because you know we're a bunch of individuals here on the phone. We're not we the anything. We're right. just a bunch here right. gathered together for a phone call. So right. we the people is a fiction. You know, we talked about that uh, earlier you said that's where the sovereignty rests and we the people. Well, I want to challenge that and say, you know, I don't. <clears throat> uh, that to me, if I go through, you know, it's, it's a, a basic um, thing that I've put out there, is God your government or is government your God? And God, what I mean by God is whoever is the one that made it, owns it, rules over it. And what I understand is, okay, uh, you know, I, I Maria's heard me do this before, but I call it the first something created, you know, there had to be a first something that created all the other somethings because you can't get something out of nothing. So there had right. to be a first something in order for other somethings to exist because you just don't get something out of nothing so whatever that first something is call it god call it creator call it the big bang i don't care what it is but in this case i'm just going to use the term god and and that just means supreme king father the one that created everything so therefore he's the only one that has a, the right to legislate he's the only one that has the right to judge he is the only right. one that has the right to execute so right. you know my status is my status is man I mean he created man really simple I don't right. go through and change my thing into oh, I'm a I'm a I'm a US citizen a state citizen uh, you know and uh, you know domiciled here lived there whatever <clears throat> because that's all realms of different fictions as I run down that thing am I a US citizen or am I a state citizen am I a you know a, a or am I a, a subject of the king they're all fictional rules. And right. all we can do with the fiction is appear as it. So if I go through to the, you know, to the, to the, um, to the to the word. Now this is where people kind of go through. Well, I don't know if I actually, you know, believe that the, uh, you know, that um, the, the, you know, God actually put forth, put forth something to actually tell us what is or what isn't. But I've kind of gone through in my study and gone in a different way, where I said, you know what, <clears throat> um, I'm gonna I'm gonna bet that we're all deceived and we don't know what's going down. And if I take that, that means me too. I'm deceived, and I've been deceived for my whole life, and I've just hit my early 60s. I'm 61 now, but I, I didn't start this study until about seven years ago going like, you know, I had never figured anything out because I chased this rabbit hole and that rabbit hole I went down state citizenship and all the rest of that stuff trying to figure a remedy, trying to figure right. a way and go like, well, you know what, a lot of good, well-intentioned people were all trying to find something, but nobody was finding anything and nobody was producing any results. So after a while, I finally figured, you know what, I, I'm, I'm going to guess everybody's deceived. And if there is a God, if there is a crea- I think there's probably – I've got a better sense to think that there's a creator that created something. There's a first something that created everything else. I have a lot better right. sense of that than to have this sense of a constitution that consti- you know, that constituted Americans or New Hampshireans or Minnesotans or you know, Alaskans or Californians, what have you. Because those are just all imaginary fictional roles that people go through and participate in and and they can appear as them or represent
1: themselves as them. So then I go back to the...
5: Hey,
1: hey, John. Yeah. Hey, buddy. uh, We've been on for three and a half hours. And so uh, I love what you talk about. And by the way, anybody interested in knowing more, um, you know, John is on... I well, hold on, hold on, John. Hold, hold on, John. Uh, John's John Miser is on redress for dummies. There's recordings. You guys really need to hear what he's talking about. He did a great uh, job presenting this to the folks in Alaska. Uh, I think it was in November, but it's, uh, it's on his page. Uh, it's on redress for dummies about John Miser. I put a link into this chat. I put a lot of links into the chat tonight uh, where you can find stuff, but uh yeah, go ahead, John. Wrap up, and uh, yeah, I'd like to hear what Daniel up. has to say.
6: Yeah, and then I, I want to get your perspective on this, Dan, because it's like I, I'm just trying to help support where we're all trying to go here. And so, right, you know, when I come in there, what jumped up for me in this Daniel is like, okay, I go to I go to first. I can go to many different parts within Scripture right now, but I finally thought, okay, that's where I finally went through on my path to go. Like, if there is a Word of God, and let's say they say it's the Bible, well, then. If there is a Creator, then this is His word, and this is the, the 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 truth that I'm going to be able to begin to figure out the deception. So when I go through this, so this whole thing about us constituting and creating a constitution, I go to chant, I go to First Samuel chapter eight, and in there, when I go to first chapter Samuel eight, it reads like this, and I'm just going to kind of read just this part of it, and uh, and then I'll kind of be done with it. But it goes like this, and it came to pass when Samuel was old. That, his sons, that he made his sons judges over Israel. And now the name of his first son was Joel, and the name of his second, Ababai, and they were the judges in Beersheba. And his sons walked not in his ways, but turned aside after lucre and took bribes and perverted judgment. And then all the elders of Israel gathered themselves together, and they came to Samuel unto Ramah. And they said to him, Behold, Thou art old, and thy sons walk not in thy ways. Now make a king to judge us like all the nations. But this thing displeased Samuel when, when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. And the Lord said unto Samuel, Hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee. For they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up of the land of Egypt unto this day, wherein they have forsaken me and served other gods, so do they also unto thee. Now therefore hearken unto their voice, howbeit yet protest solemnly unto them and show them the manner of king that shall reign over them. And Samuel told the words of the Lord unto the people that asked him of a king. And he said, this will be the manner of the king that shall reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for, his, for himself and for his chariots and to be his horsemen. And some shall run before his chariot. And he will appoint himself captains over thousands and captains over fifties. And he will set his ear to the ground and to reap his harvest, and he will take his instruments of war and instruments of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be his confectionaries and to be his cooks and to be his bakers, and he will take your fields and your vineyards and your olive yards, and even the best of them he will give to his servants, and he will take a tenth of your seed and and your vineyards and give to his officers (laughs) and to his servants. And then you will take your manservants and your maidservants and the goodness of your young men and your asses and put them to his work. And you'll take a tenth of your sheep, and ye shall be his servants. And then you will cry out in that day because of this king which you have chosen over you, and the Lord will not hear you in that day. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, Nay, but we will have a king over us or I'll modernize yeah. this, we'll have a country. how that work else.
2: out? <laughs> yeah. yeah, let's yeah. see how and that I, works
6: out. Yeah, and I can just give you, okay, I've got two more paragraphs and we're done here. That we may be like all the other nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard all the words of the people and he rehearsed them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, hearken unto their voice, make them a king. And Samuel said unto the men of Israel, go ye ever men unto his city. And that's chapter eight. And you know, you look at it right now, it's like, okay, we made our bed and we slept in it. We gave up a king, but we made made a fictional God called America, Right. and here we go. And now here we are fighting over trying to get, you know, remonstrance and redress and all the rest of this yahoo stuff because we think that we can legislate over a creation we didn't create. And so now I'm done, Gus. That
1: was my piece that I wanted to share with you, Daniel. Yeah, and, and for anybody who wants to hear more, John has more, and and he is on Redress for Dummies, and you can find him. If you can't, get in touch with me because I'll I'll give you the link. It's it's a lot of yeah, great stuff. Yeah, I'll give my too. Right, six five one three four one three four
6: three one. You know, John Miser at me dot com. M Y you S
2: know, E R. really easy. Thank it's you, five, John. And, yep, you're welcome. Um, yeah, first response. Yeah, my first response is. Um, I think it's really important, too, to address this point about status correction. I don't believe, and for one second, that it is a solution of any kind. I have done it for my own purposes, specifically to prove a point, to prove a point that these changes have happened, to bring awareness, because in the end, we can have all these meetings and all these conversations that we want, but unless we get... The, the people, and I mean the, the two-thirds of the majority that vote, to go along with us, uh, we're right where we began. And, uh, and so, uh, again, my, my purpose of this call and my message of teaching is all predicated on exposing, fundamentally, what did you inherit when their lives were on the line? Remember, this document was written through the bloody Revolutionary War. What you have here is what I think one of the purest written documents ever written by mankind as people striving to free themselves of the tyranny of an oppressive king. And as John was just getting into uh, you know the, a perspective based on on, previous, uh, on Samuel, I, I'd like to share the moral compass of the people. Gus mentioned this earlier in our earlier conversation. With Section Six of our state constitution is one of the longest articles in it. It's it's not as it's not as long uh, it's not terribly long, but bear with me because it's an appropriate response to kind of where John was going with all this. And this is sec- this is the fifth right, or excuse me, the sixth right in the Bill of Rights of New Hampshire. Quote: As morality and piety, rightly grounded on evangelical principles we give the best and greatest security to government and will lay in the hearts of men the strongest obligations to do subjection and as the knowledge of these is most likely to be propagated through the society by the institution of public worship of a deity and of public instruction in morality and religion. Therefore, to promote these important purposes, the people of this state have a right to empower and do hereby fully empower the legislature to authorize from time to time the several towns, parishes, bodies, corporate, or religious societies within the state to make adequate provisions at their own expense for the support and maintenance of public Protestant teachers of piety, religion, and morality, provided notwithstanding that the several towns, parishes, bodies, corporate, or religious societies shall at all times have exclusive right of electing their own public teachers and of contracting with them for their support and maintenance. And no portion of any one of the particular religious sects or denominations shall ever be compelled to pay towards the support of the teacher or teachers of another persuasion or sect or denomination. And every denomination of Christians, demeaning themselves as demeaning themselves quietly and as good subjects of the state shall be equally under the protection of the law and no subordination of any sect or denomination to another shall ever be established by law and nothing herein shall be understood to affect any former contracts made for the support of ministry but all such contracts shall remain and be in the same state as this constitution had not been made clothes were done on that. And so the long-winded way of saying that the state, again, was established by white Christian Protestant men who had the Ten Commandments as their lamp and they tried to establish a moral society after fighting off the king and the oppression of the king. and It's the greatest form of government I've ever seen. Uh, It's still government. It's still oppressive. Uh, That's all government knows is the use of force. So uh, that's why I believe that the controls and the constraints that were written in this document are so relevant to solving our problems. Because I think that once we get through this evening and we, we digest, and I still am digesting what I think I've uncovered here, with the means to abolish qualified immunity. Anyone who's been in this battle for a while and has tried to right the wrongs of the way the government functions and run into the walls that are in front of us understands that the 11th Amendment is the primary obstacle which is always invoked, that you need the permission of the state to sue them. Well, this abolishes all of that, and I believe that it was, the, it was a profound instrument left by the founders that said, hey, if we're going to have a f- – remember, New Hampshire has a right of government, I mean a right of revolution. You folks have never heard this. Let me give it to you, and I think we should sign off here because I know I'm getting tired. Article 10 in our state constitution, the founders of New Hampshire gave us this right, the right of revolution. Quote, Government being instituted for the common benefit, protection, and security of the whole community, and not for the private interest or emolument of any one man, family, or class of men. Therefore, Whenever the ends of government are perverted and public liberty manifestly endangered and all other means of redress are ineffectual, the people may and of right ought to reform the old or establish a new government. The doctrine of non-resistance against arbitrary power and oppression is absurd, slavish, and destructive to the good and happiness of mankind.
6: Well, i got one piece to add to that, Daniel. You know,
2: the, um, a friend of mine sent me this
6: quote uh, from John Adams. I've not been able to, to actually source it, but here's exactly what 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 the quote was by uh, this friend sent to me, which uh, Adams supposedly said. Suppose a nation in some distant region should take the Bible for their only law book, and every member should regulate their conduct by the precepts they're exhibited. Every member would be obliged in conscience to temperance, frugality, and industry to justice, kindness, and charity towards his fellow man and towards piety, love, and reverence towards Almighty God. What a utopia, what a paradise this region would be. Right, And I think what he's saying right there is we don't have the right to legislate, but if we would actually would have picked up this book and said, Every law is in there that we need to govern our conduct, be it land, be it crime, be it food laws, be it, you know, family law, be it inheritance law. It's all in there. Right. We don't have to do anything. All the legislation we need is in there. We just need to point officers and judges within our gates and begin to start to, uh, as you and I would want to do, prosecute somebody according to the law. According to that's the it. who made it, and and yep. they're simple and done. We don't have to figure out what's good or bad because the Creator knew what was good or bad for us, right? And He gave it to us right there, and we don't use it at our own peril. We think that we don't and John, it,
1: that's exactly what I believe was going on. Yeah, that's why I believe this this book, English Common Law in the Early American Colonies, is so important because it describes how the colonists. Uh, walked away from the English common law and in se- instead created their own courts according to, to what was right and what was wrong. And I agree, we need to wrap this up. <clears throat> let, me, let me just read this one thing on page 25 of that book. In Connecticut and New Haven, we find a development similar to that of Massachusetts. The Connecticut Code of 1642 was copied from that of Massachusetts. The fundamental order of the New Haven of New Haven provides for the popular election of magistrates and for the punishment of criminals according to the mind of God as revealed in his word. And it goes on. It's a great book. You really ought to read it. And, uh, Daniel, last words before we go.
2: Uh, I'm honored and humbled that you asked me to join you this evening. And, uh, um, you know, these are these are my opinions that I've uh, have come to, uh, after quite a few years of extensive research into the function of the state government, I think that it's uh, it's critical for us to understand this basic concept. The states created the federal government, and the only way we're going to put it through what I believe needs to happen, an organized bankruptcy of the federal government needs to happen, and the only way that's going to happen is the states that created the instrument need to come under control of the people. And unfortunately, we're in a society now where too many people are asleep, but are, they're probably awake after this virus. Um, well, you know, they're, they're maybe, sitting
1: home paying attention to something right now.
2: <laughs> right, right. But uh, more importantly, that, uh, that the only way we're going to – how else do you fight back other than knowledge and teaching and knowledge? What is the, the biblical verse? My people perish for a lack of knowledge. That's, that's exactly what's going on. How else are you going to r- violate the rights of the people? The only way you're going to do it is if they don't know what their rights are.
1: Or put them to sleep. Put them to sleep first.
2: Right. Take over
1: the both. educational system. You, you read Article 6 of the New Hampshire Constitution from the original. All right? the, the, the current
2: original. Article 6 is, only,
1: is, is two short
2: paragraphs. Exactly. It's been cut in half and less.
1: Oh, much less, yeah. They absolutely gutted... Uh, the people's right to educate their own kids, and th- because right. it, it, it was firmly held that they should do so according to the mind of God as
2: revealed in his word. And you wonder why children are shooting up schools, uh, you think? Hello? Hey.
1: Oh. All right, well, hey, Hello. I appreciate everybody being on here. This recording will be available probably within an hour of now, you know, of when we uh, we stop it. And uh, everything that was said tonight is going to be available in a transcript. It doesn't usually come out real good, you know, like real, you know, totally accurate. But uh, the bulk of it will be available pretty clearly, you know, to understand, uh, pretty pretty clearly typed out. It's an automatic thing that this uh, this, uh, website does that we're using to do the call. And so that will be available sometime tomorrow. The call itself, the recording will be available within an hour probably. And we'll do another one again soon. Again, Daniel, I really appreciate you being here. John, Brad, everybody who participated, Maria. Um, It's really great to get together with all you guys again.
2: Hey, Gus, before Before you go.
1: Thank you, Daniel, for your time.
2: You're welcome. Hey, before you guys go, uh, one thing. I'm going to get with Gus in the next couple of days and I'm going to get a copy of the seminar I put on for the Secretary of State on the voting laws and also I'm going to uh, get him copies of my two remonstrances. Um, the second one that I did is going to make a nice template for anyone to copy uh, and use for their for themselves and I think it's a really uh, a straightforward and easy to understand and uh, we can pick this, pick this conversation up on another day and There's a great many other subjects we didn't have time to cover, and we can get into those at another time.
1: Daniel, I was uh, thinking today, um, my old
2: website, New Hampshire
1: Redress, is something I've not really used in six or seven years, but uh, you're there in New Hampshire, and I would like to work with you on revising that entire website to suit your purposes and and with what you're doing there, because uh, it's already set up. I mean, it's, it's it's just sitting there. And so, uh,
3: awesome.
1: Yeah, I'll eventually get the links out. I'll put a blog together on my current website uh, with links to to that video from you know that you where you're teaching the Secretary of State's people and those documents and so on. I'll, I'll get all that together for everybody. Okay. All right, y'all have a great night.
2: All right, God bless. Yeah. Bye.
4: Thanks, guys. Bye bye.
1: Thanks. Bye bye. Good night.